Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly, and I am disgusted. I mean, if anybody, I mean, I'm assuming if you're up and you're listening right now, you either saw or you heard the end to that Phillies game on Saturday night, and it's almost indescribable what happened at the end of that game. Um, and as I mentioned to Ricky, I was I was down there at Citizens Bank Park, uh, dark ballpark, uh, sitting in the radio booth engineering uh, with Scott Fransky and Kevin Franzen and Greg Murphy in, the, in our socially distanced um, studio for the pre and post game and you know, I'm we're we're literally the only people in the ballpark. And uh they're calling the game off the screen. I'm, you know, kinda planning my show out and thinking, all right, well, Phil's up three to one. This is nice. This game's gonna end right around ten thirty. Have a post game go till about eleven. I'll be in shape to get to get to the station at plenty of time to prepare to do my show tonight. And then three to one in the bottom of the ninth. And here comes Hector Naris. And I am not a Hector Naris hater. Okay. Like I actually like Hector Naris as a guy personally. I mean, that really doesn't mean anything as far as whether he should be the closer or not. But in general, I think he's a pretty good pitcher when he can throw his splitter and when he's got his things working. But the thing that you know about Hector is that he's inconsistent. And Hector Naris comes out in the ninth, gets the first two outs, and you already knew it was a little shaky. I mean, I think it was the second hitter of the inning. Hit a rope to center. Uh, was that... Now, you have a good memory here, Daniel. I know you are paying attention closely. That was the ninth, right? Second hitter of the ninth. A rocket to center that O'Double... It always makes it interesting on. out there in center O'Double. Does. Right. But yeah, he catches it. That was, that was, the, that, uh, that was the timing. Uh, the, sorry, these whole final four innings are just a jumble mess yeah. of... Of, of sickening uh, baseball on both sides, to be honest with you. But um, 
Hector then walks Adrianza, which is like, you have a two-run lead, all right? And I understand that baseball is different these days and that it's a lot of strikeouts and that's how you get most of your outs. But why are you walking that guy? Why do you not make him put the ball in play? I believe Hector was up 0-2 in that count. And you let this, you let Adrian's, who I believe only took one swing in that at bat, you walk him. And I knew that second. He walks him. Here comes Pablo, who has been just destroying the Phillies for years. We saw it opening day this year. I mean, bring just anytime I see any member of that 2010 San Francisco Giant team, it just brings horrible memories back. And. He hits the ball, and I mean, I don't know. We have the call of the Pablo Homer, uh, Dan. We may not have it. I'm not sure if we do. I, I didn't because of the lateness of the game. I didn't get a chance to get all the sound together that I typically get. So if I'm a little frazzled tonight, um, it's because I I I am. Um, but the second that Pablo Sandoval hits that ball, uh, you can just hear in Scott Fransky's voice that you know it's gone. You know where this thing's going. Uh, that ties the game up at three. And then extra innings is just a complete bleep show, to be honest with you, on both sides. Uh, the Phillies don't score in the top of the 10th. Bottom of the 10th, uh, Brandon Kinsler comes on, bases loaded, one out. The Phillies find a way to get out of it. And then you're thinking, okay, well, you got to win this game now. Maton, a double in the top of the 11th to score a run, put the Phillies on top. Give up a run. Didi with a with a bad throwing error. Didi's defensive struggles continue. How many errors is that for him this year? I believe, is that seven or eight errors for Didi Gregorius already this season? Um, that allows the Braves to tie it at four. And then the top of the 12th. And the Phillies get the break of all breaks. And uh, that guy, I, I think Brandon Webb, is that his name uh, on, on Atlanta? I'm not sure what his first name is. It really doesn't matter. Um, but that guy should be sent down immediately because what he did was a disgrace. He misses the throw to the plate. That's a throwing error. Then he doesn't cover home plate, which, I mean, as he receives um, the second run come around the score, Phillies end up getting three in the inning, and then you think, okay, you're up 7-4. you got to win this thing now. Eniel De Los Santos comes on. Runner on second, but that run's irrelevant. Um, you know, you're up three runs, shouldn't be an issue. De Los Santos then walks the first hitter of the inning. And I'm telling you, I knew right then. I knew right then that this game was lost. The Braves end up just tacking on the runs. Um, De Los Santos unable to hold it. And the Phillies lose. To the Braves, eight to seven. And if you want to get in and talk about it, 215-592-9494, 215-592-9494. But a game that is eerily similar to 2020. And you know, it's it's the kind of game that makes you lose faith and lose belief in this team. Because I was anticipating coming in here tonight. And talking about a Philly six-game winning streak, and you know this, you sweep the Brew Crew in four at home. You take the first two in a game with Atlanta. You know Sunday night baseball tomorrow. 
you're thinking at that point, okay, well, this is just, you know, cake. This is gravy. I mean, you'd love to get the get the win here, and you'd love to sweep the Braves, but if you don't, you take two of three in Atlanta. Always good. But this is the kind of game that you look back on, and it just kills you. It just kills you. And it makes you think that this team really is a pretender. And, you know, uh, we always talk about it as far as uh, overreacting. Uh, you always worry about overreacting to one game throughout the course of a Major League Baseball season. You know, you always are concerned about that. And uh, you, you know that it's a sprint or it's a marathon, not a sprint and all that stuff. We talk about it all the time. But the way this team found a way to lose, it just was way too similar to last season. And it was not just one thing. It was not just Hector Neris. It was not just Didi Gregorius' error. It was not just Eniel De Los Santos not being able to get anybody out in the, um, in the bottom of the 12th inning. But it's the manager with, again, some just very odd lineup choices. Like, why, why, why are you double-switching out Gene Segura that early in the game? We'll get to that later on in more detail. But why are you doing that? He's your best hitter right now. So you can leave Scott Kingery in the game for his defense, and we'll get to Kingery. Because this guy should not be on a major league roster right now, all right? You know he can't hit. What he did, in, I guess that was in the 12th, or, or the 11th, it was the 12th, I think, where if you're going to go to third, you can't double pump. Like, he double pumps going to third base. In the end, the runner ends up being safe, and that's how the Braves end up winning the game. Um, that can't happen. The offense, and I know they scored 12 runs last night. I know they jumped on top in this game. But again, these kind of of trends that just are continuous where, okay, you score three runs in the first two innings. Great. But then you go just dead silent for the rest of the game. And it just can't happen. And it's the kind of night that makes me think this team is not going to be in the mix when it matters. That come August, come September, you can't lose games like this. And I know that's a long way away. But really, a game like this, you can never lose. But I want your just general frustration about this game because we are coming off what should be a positive week for the Phillies with that five-game winning streak. But it's bookended by these two ridiculous losses. Last Sunday night, the Reese Hoskins play, which was totally inexcusable when he acted like a mopey little leaguer not running the ball back into the infield. This game on Saturday night, which the Phillies lost, in pretty much every way imaginable. Gives me serious doubts about this team. And I want your takeaways. I want your your just thoughts on a really frustrating night. Who's most to blame? And, and where do you go from here? Um, with the back part of the bullpen, especially. 215-592-9494. Let's get it started on the phones. Steve in Tampa. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm all right. How are you doing? I want you to come off the bridge. Well, they, you, I live on the well, bridge, Steve. You sound Steve. like you're uh, ready to jump off. I mean, I'm frustrated, Steve. It was a, it was a long night of baseball. You know, you, you're, you're, you're thinking you're going to come on talking about a, 
uh, a six-game winning streak, a big win, and then that was that was a disaster. I mean, that was terrible. I, I can't remember. Maybe you can. The last game, the Phillies had three blown saves. Um, I can't the, think of one. The the last time the Phillies had three blown saves. Yeah. I I mean, last last year they had a ton of blown saves. In one game, three. Oh, three. Yeah, three and one. That's a good point, Steve. Yeah, yeah I, three and one game. That's yeah. three and one game tonight. No, yeah, you're right. No, I I I. I Cannot remember another time, too. So who was it? Was Neris, De Los Santos, and Brogdon, correct? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Just uh, really frustrating that, that you can't you, – you really still feel like in a lot of ways you can't rely on this bullpen. Well, let me, let me ask you a silly question. This year, at the beginning of spring training, all of this radio – I don't know if it was you or not, but other towns said, well, they really improved their bullpen this year. Um, you're going to see a big difference. I don't see a difference between this year and last year. Do you? I see a difference. I mean, they're better this year. They got more reliable Where, where pieces. are they better, Tom? I mean, Coonrod, I think, is a reliable piece. Um, I would say Kinsler is a reliable piece. Bradley's been out. I like Alvarado, but still, the back, like like the front guys in that bullpen, like, you still have three or four guys in that pen that you really can't rely on. I, I agree with that. I, I had, I had like, Brogdon, but he's really regressed over the last couple of weeks. If you can't rely on them, what the bleep are they doing on the, on the roster? Well, that's the problem, Steve. They don't have anybody better right now. I mean, I... I, 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 I just hope that the general manager's team saw that game last night and, and, and attempts to do something before the trading deadline. Well, yeah, I mean, I... he does it, there's something wrong. Yeah, I mean, I would hope they do, Steve, and I, I appreciate the call. I mean, I would hope they, they, they address it. I mean, finally, it looks like you got center field somewhat, um, somewhat settled. Because, I mean, not shocking. I've been saying it for six, seven weeks now. I don't know what took the organization so long. I mean, they can say it wasn't PR-related all they want. Um, it was clearly PR related in terms of Odubel Herrera, but he's clearly your best option in center field. And you're actually getting some production from center field now. But again, um, you know, it, and it's not, it, it's more a general feeling about this team than it is a particular position or a particular player. It's just a feeling I get about the team that they find ways to lose. Like, whether it's defensively, whether it's on the base paths, whether it is, you know, the bullpen blowing it or a starter not being reliable. There are just too many games like this. Like, you're going to have nights where you don't hit. Everybody has nights where they don't hit. But not being able to play a clean game, not being able to shut the door when you have two outs, two strikes in the ninth inning, um, when you have three opportunities to close it out, it just cannot happen. And, you know, it's it's really frustrating. 215-592-9494. Let's go to Jim in the Northeast. What's up, Jim? Hi. Okay. I want, you know, everybody's complaining about what happened. Nobody blames Dabrowski and Sam Fold and Mr. Middleton. Here's why. They allow these people to stay on the team. 
There's no other option than Naris, apparently, okay? Dombrowski was supposed to be a guy that had a decent baseball IQ that could make some trades. He got two lousy fourth and fifth starters. He couldn't solve the center field problem, but nobody puts it on them. They blame Girardi. They, okay, but the thing is, is why is Naris still on the team? And who who could we get? As a closer or a center well, well, that, we have well, nobody to trade. Well, Jim, we I, 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 trade. I partially agree with you here. Like, Hector Neris should be in a major league bullpen. Like, he's not a terrible pitcher who doesn't belong in the major leagues, but I agree. But he, you cannot, he's not a you, closer. I agree. You cannot continue to close games with him because this happens way too much. Like, Hector Neris is much better suited to be a guy in the sixth, seventh inning that can come right. in and you're not overly reliant on him to win games because if he doesn't have okay. that if he doesn't have that splitter working, he has nothing. Like he is totally ineffective right. if that splitter is not working. Right. Okay. But nobody on on WIP has ever answered this question and I've asked it a million times. Who could we trade to get somebody that could help us? We have nobody in the minors that anybody would want. We would have to trade like a Hoskins or somebody to even get somebody. Exactly. So how can we solve the problem? That's Who the problem, Jim. That's the problem. You really can't. I mean, if you're maybe right. maybe maybe now that you see he's giving you something, if you're willing to trade a guy like Maton, like maybe he can get you something. But you probably don't want to give him up. But that's the thing. Like I don't think you can fault. Dombrowski for the problems with the farm system. He just got here. Like these are. I mean, yeah, John yeah, Middleton well, said. A yeah, but well, he went out and got our fifth, fourth, and fifth starters that were all the trophy that are that are no. Yeah, I mean Chase, Chase, you know what Chase Anderson and Matt Moore are? They're just they're just a couple guys. Like they're not they're not guys who were expected to come in and change your fortunes. I mean, Dave Dombrowski right. was brought in here to get JT, JT Real Muto back, to get Didi, right. Didi Gregorius back, and he did that. Like the problems you're seeing with the farm system, you can blame Andy McPhail and Matt Clentak for that. Right, but the thing is, there was other options. I mean, uh, 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 the guy that's in center field for the Braves, my brain's not working tonight. He was a free agent up till spring training. He's a, he would have better better stopgap. Jackie Bradley Jr. would have been at least a better option than what we have. Okay, but Dombrowski didn't think of that. Okay. Well, I I don't, and I appreciate the call, Jim. Thanks. I don't think he didn't think of it. I mean, I let's let's face it. I mean, the luxury tax is a real thing here, and John Middleton doesn't want to go in the luxury tax. I think that's pretty clear. And I mean, in some ways, I mean, I guess I, I well, I mean, when he when he talks as big as he does, I guess you do kind of have to blame him to an extent. But, um. This is the problem, and this is what I've been saying with the Phillies for a long time now, is the problem that they find themselves in at this point is that they really have one option to correct their problems. And the only option that they have is to spend money. And that backs John Middleton into a quarter corner, and that's why you know I don't feel bad for him because this is the corner that he's backed himself into. Because the Phillies went through what they looked at as a rebuild. Like, they decided from, what, 2014 to 2017, yeah, 2014, 2017, like those four years, 
that they weren't going to worry about what they put out there on the field. And they were going to go out and they were going to win, you know, 60 to 70 games and they were going to develop the farm system. The problem is they didn't develop the farm system and you don't have prospects. And that is something that that you can't just overcome because developing prospects is how you get players via trade. You know, it's how you acquire big-time assets. If you don't have a farm system, it's why you do have guys in the bullpen that don't belong there. It's why Vince Velasquez is still in your starting rotation, even though Vince Velasquez, give him credit where it's due. I mean, the last couple starts have been pretty good. He's pretty good again tonight. He deserved a better fate tonight. Um, but this is the issue, is when you don't have prospects, you don't have guys who can come up and fill roles when players go down. So when a guy like Archie Bradley goes down, it, you know it's pronounced. Because you look at that game tonight, in one of those spots where Steve had asked three saves and one night blown, Naris, Brogdon, De Los Santos. In one of those spots, I guarantee you that's either Archie Bradley coming in or Coonrod coming in. If Bradley pitches earlier, you preserve Coonrod for later on, and then maybe you have a different fate. But the problem is, when you don't have guys who are in the minor league system who are ready to come up and fill those roles, you have no other option other than to just go spend money. And that's why I don't really know what the Phillies have in terms of trade trade value. Because, I mean, nobody's who, who's trading for Scott Kingery right now with that contract? Nobody. I mean, you have Maton, who, we're, and, and even with him, we're judging this off a few weeks. I mean, this isn't... Um, a large track record here, and who knows? You might like him enough where you don't want to give him up um, with Segura and Gregorius being more short-term options in the middle infield, but yeah, Phillies are in, in, in have a problem right now because I don't see any way they correct their issues without going into the tax, and that is something that John Middleton to this point has shown that he's kind of unwilling to do. 215-592-9494. Tom, Jay, see you both there. We'll get both you guys right when we get back, and we will talk about Hector Naris uh, a little more when we return. Uh, I'm Tom Kelly with you on this uh, Mother's Day, Sunday, Mother's Day morning, uh, right here on Sports Radio 94 WIP. Ball, two strikes, Naris against Pablo Sandoval. He comes set, and the pitch. Swing and a drive to center field, deep. And this game is tied. Sandoval has hit his fourth pinch hit home run of the season. He's done it to the Phillies again with two outs and two strikes in the bottom of the ninth inning. It's a 3-3 game. I mean, you just knew it right off the bat that Pablo Sandoval got all of it. And he is like, would he be on like the Mount Rush? I hate doing Mount Rushmore things but would he be one of the biggest philly killers ever like is is that am There's i different making, kinds of philly am killers. i making too much of that dan or, or does pablo actually kill the philly well he's time? brutal he's and he's obviously very different in this part of his career we all remember him from the giants when he was one of the main pillars of that team and now he's basically the 2021 version of matt stairs going up you know like overweight just trying to do one thing and you knew it's a it's a home run or nothing well, like we, we, we like to make fun of Pablo, Mike, and I because uh, we do our Gabe Kapler check-ins. And one oh, of our, last year, that photo. One of our famous game, Gabe Kapler check-ins is uh, Gabe raving about Pablo Sandoval 
and how he knew when to properly interject during a launch. Like he just <laughs> knew knew exactly the right times to chime in. He, he really has perfect social cues. I'm I'm really glad to hear that. Well, yeah. That's something that Gabe, you know, Gabe, 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 Gabe values that kind of thing. Stuff. Well, he knows when to swing the bat at a fastball and a one and two pitch. Right. When he swung at it after he swung at a splitter in the dirt earlier yeah. in the bat. So you're pretty worked up about that. Like, yeah. And and I I want to get to this because I I just I I can't I can't watch Hector save games anymore. I'm sorry. Like. I am fine with Hector in the bullpen. I don't think he's a guy who shouldn't be in the major leagues. He should be in the major leagues. He has a role in the major leagues. But it's not as a closer. I mean, we see this too much. When you bring him in in either tie games or or a lead late game situations, what, like I look at it as a pretty much a 50-50 proposition. Are you going to get good Hector? You're going to get bad Hector. And when he doesn't have that splitter, which he didn't have on Saturday night, he's completely ineffective. You can't have a guy like that closing games for you. All right, so I actually disagree a little bit on a few accounts. One is I think he's been a lot better than 50-50 this year. His ERA Mm -hmm. coming in was 188. He allowed a run last Saturday to the Mets. He pitched an inning and two-thirds scoreless against the Brewers. All of his last five outings before that were scoreless, and there was one run he allowed in Colorado, and before that it was like eight scoreless outings in a row. Like, he's been pretty effective this year. Now, I get he's got a long track record as the closer of the Phillies, and people are ready to suck on a new lemon. And if that's the case, that's fine. And I'm not telling you that he should be the closer for the entirety of the season. But overall this season, he's been pretty good. And I think to blame this on, like, this was a mental error on someone. You mentioned the split. Like, the splitter, to me, up until that Sandoval at bat, like, look pretty good. Sometimes he hang, he hangs the splitter over the middle of the plate. This was a fastball that, in my opinion, was inexplicably chosen to be thrown. This was a mental error. This wasn't the splitter not working. Now, I, I get, you know, the criticism of JT as far as calling the game, but, I mean, let's Why are you not, throwing anything anywhere let's close? Let's not absolve Hector, though. Like, No, if, I know. It's a team effort it, out right. there. If Hector, I mean, Hector knows his stuff. Like, if you don't think JT's calling the right pitch... Shake him off and throw the splitter. Like, uh, well, it's, so I was talking about this with Ricky. It's like, who really has the cachet, basically, to shake off JT? I mean, maybe you step off and just say, like, I don't like it. You call him out for a mound visit. I get it. But you wonder if maybe he thought that and just was like, no, JT knows. Well, maybe JT had kind of, I don't know, maybe fallen in love with it. Because actually, Scott and Kevin were talking about this on the broadcast the inning before, where it seemed like Alvarado was just pumping fastballs. Like, he had not thrown a cutter. He was not throwing, throwing you know, any breaking stuff. He was just throwing fastballs uh, to Danzy Swanson. Maybe maybe JT kind of fell in love with the fastball from the inning before. Different pitchers. I don't know. I, I don't get why he would you, throw You had gotten there. up in the at-bat. This is Sandoval, whose plate discipline is bad. You know what he's up there to do. Like, I just don't. I, there shouldn't that pitch shouldn't have been in the strike zone. You have three pitches to work with. Like throw him something else in the dirt. See if he bites. Yeah. He was swing. I I just don't understand. Sometimes it's physical errors with Maris where you say, "Wow, that splitter's just not looking like it's effective tonight." In this case, it was just a mental blunder that could have been prevented. And it's another mental blunder. It goes right up to the top. They've had mental blunders under Girardi before. It's it's just so infuriating because you feel like it could have been prevented. It wasn't this guy didn't have his stuff. I felt like I could have been calling the pitches and prevented Sandoval hitting that home run. Yeah, I just I just feel like it's too much. I, and I maybe feel it like, is. And maybe they yeah. look, Coonrod's been good. Maybe they go to him. I have a hard time saying it should be Alvarado because he's basically your only effective lefty. Right. You can't trust JoJo and against most, le- you know, you can't trust him to be your lefty guy. 
basically. So what are you going to, like, Coonrod, I guess, would be your guy that you want to go to at this Probably. point? Probably. And then Brad- Hector's your setup guy? Once or? Bradley gets back, I think you have a little more Bradley's leeway. Bradley's got closing experience to move, to move Coonrod. But, yeah, I think Coonrod be up next. But I want to know from you, do you believe Hector Naris should still be the closer? I just, I don't think you can continue to go this route because, you know, even when he when he does have a couple good outings, like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll put it this way, before, and we'll get to Tom, Tom, we'll get to you in one second, but... Okay, Dan, this is the real um the real test. The real test for you. Yeah. Say the Phillies do get in like the wild card game. <laughs> do I want Hector Nair? Right. Do you trust Hector Nair? He's a high out, wire act. I look I Do get you it. trust him to come out close a one run game against a good opponent? Against as opposed to Coonrod? And this is like yeah. four months from now? As opposed to anybody that you could have. Just just in general. Well, like, like outside the well, organization. No, no, just in terms of Hector. Like forget about everybody else right now. Just think about Hector. Like one one run game. You're in a wild card playoff game. You know, the order you're, coming up. You're going up against I don't know the Braves or the Cardinals or or one of these teams that's going to be in the mix. Do you trust Hector Neris to close that game? On like to what extent? Somewhat. Just, just it, it, yes or no. Yes or no. I'll give you a a wonky that's a no. yes. That's a no. <laughs> it's, that's it's, a no. It's an okay. If it's, it's not a, a yes, it's a no. But that's I don't know I'm that thinking. I don't I don't know Sam Coonrod. We've seen in a small sample right. size, like he was pretty bad last year. I don't know that there's anyone but on this the roster point, where I'm like, yeah, right. they're coming out. But the point is, you do know with Hector, and you know you do. <laughs> to Fair enough. But I w- I want to see more. Like All I don't right. think he should lose the closing spot on this. Okay, I just feel like we've been watching this for four years. You're I'm sick ready. of the high wire act. I, I get, get it. I get uh, it. I'm ready to move him to a more middle relief role. And hey, I still think he'd be productive there. Two one five five nine two nine four nine four. If you want to get in, and maybe we'll throw that question out there. Big game, you know, maybe late September, whatever. Do you trust Hector Neris to save a one run game? I don't. Two one five five nine two nine four nine four. Tom in Alabama. Thanks for hanging, man. Yo, Tom. What's up, Tom? Not much. If you go back and take a look at that ninth inning, uh, this was probably the first game all year that I watched the whole game. There is the first two batters. The ball was falling off the table. Now, I don't know if Rilamuto called for a fastball or not, which I would think he did. Okay? It's on him. Okay? As well as Joe Girardi. Well, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. uh, My... Uh, if I'm trying to get inside JT Romito's head, I guess maybe he didn't want to go through the thing you just went through with Adrianza where you kept throwing splitters and then you ended up walking him. I mean, I, I, I'm just trying to think maybe that's what he, he, he didn't trust that Hector could throw that splitter and, um, you know, entice Sandoval to swing at it. I don't know. Well, I don't think they need to find something for Naris not to be close. I agree with you there. But really, Muto. And I'm not knocking him as a player. He's a very good catcher, no question. I'm probably one of the best. But I was one of the few that didn't want to go that route. I wanted the Phillies to go all in on George Springer, where he would have played center field and let off. Let me tell you where I really got PO'd tonight. Was in the fourth inning, Velasquez is pitching his ass off and a fly ball to left, left field. Really, it looked like a routine fly ball, okay? And then McCutcheon, the ball hits him in the arm. The ball should have hit him in the damn heads where it should have hit him. And then in the 12th inning or whatever it was, he let the tie, he let the tying run get across the plate. He has no business out there. There's too many other needs that should be should have been addressed with the money for Real Mito. 
And as far as Dombrowski's concerned, I think he's done a pretty good job being the fact he's got an owner over there pitching pennies from the beginning. He was pounding his chest saying he's going to die to be a winner. We died when you hired Andy McPhail, buddy. Well, I'll say this, Tom. Like I, 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 and I've been critical of Middleton. I don't think he's pinching pennies. Like the guy has spent money. I mean, let's not let's not act, let's not act like he, he hasn't spent money. Tax? No, he has not gone over the laundry tax, tax, and that's a fair criticism. But he has spent money. I mean, he spent a lot of money to bring back JT, bring back DD, and add to the bullpen. So I will not. I will at least give him credit for that. That Middleton has spent money, uh, whether it's enough or not. You know that that's for for you to decide. Truly, the kicker tonight was the Braves. They just really gift wrapped it for us. The defense, oh my God. And I just, truly, it was just one of those nights. And just to show you, I mean, it really didn't surprise me because I haven't bought into the Phillies in 10 years. And I couldn't tell you the last time I bought into the Philadelphia Flyers, who blew a game by that line, was great tonight. They blow it with 40 seconds left, let them tie it. And, of course, oh, they really? didn't lose the tie. Yeah, <laughs> just a brutal night all the way oh. around, Tom. Yeah, brutal, Tom. I appreciate it. Sorry, I didn't re- – I, I, and I, I'm just being 100% honest here. I didn't even know the Flyers were still playing. I, I re- They have like, one game left now, Tom. You locked in? Great. Yeah. Uh, is it tomorrow? Is no, it today? Monday. Okay, great. Monday. They have played 55 of their 56 games. I mean, I'm sorry. I just well, – They were hard. You know, and I know we're a sports station, but – the Flyers have totally lost me in the last two months. I mean, it's just... Well, they were just brutal. They were it, unwatchable. Terrible. And, uh, yeah, I, I honestly, legitimately did not know they were still playing. They, so, funny little stat for you here. Not that it happens that often, but they, the Phillies, Sixers, and Flyers hadn't all won on the same night since 2012 until Monday, I think it was, and they did it twice this week. Hmm. That's interesting. Like how, um, like how that even I, now they're playing, they're overlapping more because the NBA and NHL regular season wouldn't usually still be going now. Yeah, but still, they did it twice in the same week after a nine-year drought. And now, and you know, I know there's more that goes into this than than I have knowledge of, and and I know there are certain decisions that are made much for much different reasons than what I'm bringing into account. But really, we're bumping the Phillies to cozy TV. Oh, it was so uh, grainy. Of, it was brutal. Yeah, I mean, the, like. PHL had done More games P- earlier, and it was HD. It was fine. Yeah, and and PHL, I couldn't even watch a game on PHL. I have YouTube TV, and oh, they, and they don't, they don't carry don't carry it. So but you didn't get it. I, I I didn't know what what was Ricky talking about, acting like people don't have NBC Sports. Yeah, I was like, I was sitting that. here saying, look, they were on NBC Ten, and maybe there are some people left, but those people don't get yeah. six out of seven Phillies games a week, but, so they have something else figured out if they're trying to see these games. But as I mentioned during the crossover, um. Mike Angelina texted me today a picture of him at the Yankees game. I got to give Ricky, 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 Ricky Mike, was proud of those seats. Uh, he was, he was telling me before too. They were, they, they were, were nice. They were the equivalent to the Diamond Club. That's what they were. And at Yankee Stadium, those are not inexpensive. Oh no, not at all. I've, I've never even been to a Yankee game, but hey, maybe I'll, maybe I'll take Ricky I, up I, on I, that. I, I might go. I might yeah. be there with you. There you go. Two one five five nine two nine four nine four. Let's go to Jay in Millstone. What's up, Jay? How are you? Good. How are you? Good. So two things bothered me about this game, and I'm watching. Uh, we're right on the borderline, so I'm watching the Phillies game on NBC10, and I'm watching the Mets game, hoping they lose, which they didn't. So early in the game, you've got first and third, nobody out, and Bryce Harper 
reaches for an outside down pitch. And you, you're hoping they get an, at least one more run there, something. And Bryce Harper hits into a double play. It should have never come to these extra innings. It should have never happened. But then you're watching on NBC 10, and it's the 11th inning, and we're in the beginning of the beginning of the inning, and they make an announcement that you've got to go to NBC Philly, which we don't get. Oh no! Because they're going to put on they're they're going to put on SNL Saturday yeah. Night Live bullshit. Whoa! Okay, and they put it on, and I say, all right, I'm going to have to watch it on my cell phone now. Uh huh. And I just I figured once they got that three run lead. I can't stand when they walk a batter. Yeah. I can't stand it. You figured it's seven to four. Even if they give up that run, who cares? All right. And then they blow this game. All right. And it should have never gotten to Sandoval. All right. The other guy, he had him. He had a two-strike count on him. And you cannot throw that kind of pitch, uh, uh, walk this guy. Oh, it was just disgusting. So those are my two points that Bryce Harper, all he had to do was hit a damn fly ball, all right, and we would have never been in this position. Yeah, no, Jay, it's a legit point, and I appreciate the call. Um, Yeah, I mean, the Bryce Harper thing, and, and, you know, I like Bryce Harper. I do. Um, And, you know, you understand why the Phillies did what they did when they did it. And Bryce Harper has been good in Philadelphia. Like, he has not been bad. But I'd be lying to you if I didn't already say, as you look around Major League Baseball and you see Albert Pujols getting released on Thursday and you see what the Detroit Tigers are dealing with with Miguel Cabrera. And Miguel Cabrera is a guy who doesn't did not take care of himself. Like, let's face it. Like, Bryce Harper, I don't think would, um, his regression will not be because of work ethic uh, or anything like that. Like, I believe Bryce Harper cares, and I believe Bryce Harper will work hard um, to be as good as he can be for as long as he can be it. But I'd be lying if I didn't already tell you that I am dreading the end of that contract. And, for what you're getting for Bryce Harper now, like, is it worth what you're paying him now? Sure, it's worth what you're paying him now. I mean, baseball contracts are big, but is it worth what you're getting from Bryce Harper now to eat the final three to five years of that deal, which are going to be horrifically bad? Uh, yeah, and look, what, the day he signed it, I was thinking in my head, they're doing this for the front end of this contract. And the day they signed JT Romuto... I'm saying they're going to do this for the front end of this contract, which is why that point you were speaking to earlier about the lack of farm system being so concerning is the time is now. Like, this is the team. They have nothing. They have no blue chip prospects to trade away to make this team better. They are all in. This team is basically pushing the luxury tax, though they are not over it. They have the prime of Aaron Nola, the prime of Harper, the prime of Real Muto right now. And if this team doesn't contend now, like, there is no... Like, the end of this is going to be bad. Like, you remember the end of the Howard contract days? The Like, that's what we're going to be set up for. The difference is that came following five consecutive NL East titles and a world championship. Yeah. This is a lot different. And if they don't get runs to the postseason now, like, 
I'm talking between now and like the first half of the 2020s, that end of that contract is going to be so brutal. And we're looking at a look. He's going to be 39 right. when that contract ends. He's going to be washed just the same way Pujols because it's only going to come down to team success. And the bottom line is the Angels played in three playoff games with Albert Pujols. Like brutal. Which, that, <laughs> that's an awful contract. They have two MVP candidates on that team, and they're in fourth place. They're always gonna, like they're always just brutal. They're always that team that that flashy players you think it's going to be good, and they're just never good. They just never are because they're just you know money all tied up in a few guys. But I mean, what? You know, and I'll throw this out to the callers, uh, you know, 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. But, like, what do the Phillies need to do to make this Bryce Harper contract worth it from a team success standpoint? Because um, the clock's ticking. And I know it's early and it's only three years into the deal. But, I mean, these guys get old fast. And I'd be lying if I told you that this injury stuff with Reese or with Bryce Harper isn't concerning. I mean... Back injuries are no joke for outfielders. Like, that is not a good issue to have three years in to a 13-year deal. Um, you know, wrist issues. Like, he, it always feels like he's dealing with something. And if this team doesn't start winning with Bryce Harper, because let's face it, we thought the minute they signed him, the minute they did everything they did in 2019, I think John Middleton felt this way too, that they would just start having a large level of team success and that it would lead to postseason births and playoff runs. That has not happened. What do the Phillies need to do from team standpoint to make that contract worth it? 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. I'm Tom Kelly. When we get back, we'll talk about one of the biggest failures of the Phillies farm system. That's coming up next uh, right here on Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly. With you on a Sunday morning um, around the rest of Philadelphia sports. Uh, the Eagles, uh, we'll, we'll get into them in the next segment. I see Mike in South Philly's on the line. We'll talk to Mike. Uh, I do want to get to the signing or the claim, waiver claim the Eagles made. Curry on Johnson. An interesting move. Um, so they add to that running back room. You know, a guy who's going to uh, play a, a role. Um, but I think it's a nice addition as kind of a third back maybe a second back to go along. He'll be your power guy um, along with Miles Sanders and, and Kenneth Gainwell. I, I don't think this is uh, good news for Jordan Howard. Um, I never understood the Eagles bring back Jordan Howard to begin with, but Jordan Howard, Boston Scott, um, I, I do not like their chances of making this team this year. And Boston Scott, nice guy. I mean, works hard, good story. He's not an NFL player. And, you know, we had the Darren Sproles comparisons basically just because of his size, but he's not, you know, any of the type of player that Darren Sproles was. And every time you saw Boston Scott need to take more of a role, um, he just wasn't equipped to do that. So um, I don't think he'll be back. I don't think Jordan Howard will be back. Uh, but on Johnson, I like that as an addition. I did want to get to Scott Kingery in a, a minute here, who I think represents the Phillies farm system failures more than anybody. But I, I did make a promise uh, to Mike Angelina the other night that I would bring this up on the air, and this involves you, Dan. Um, I uh, do not have a social media gripe tonight, but we were doing our social media gripe the other night, and it hit me last Saturday night during the show, and things were moving so quickly that I did not get a chance to properly call you out on it. 
call Wait, me you out. You committed a gripe on the air, a social media gripe Last on week? the air. Yes. With I, wait, with you? Yes, I believe you did a verbal checks notes, if I remember <laughs> correctly, and that is a social media gripe. You don't and like the I, check notes? I told Mike that I thought you did that. Did it, now? Do I have that right? Did you do that on the? I don't air? even remember. I believe you did. What, do you remember what it was about? I, I have to go back remember. and check the audio. I don't remember. Oh, but, you know what it might have been. It might have been that I was well in the middle of gloating. Was it with you? I thought it was with Ricky when we were talking about. Jolly's pick for the Derby. Maybe. And I you, said I had it right. right. I was like, oh, check notes. I had it right. Things were moving so fast that I forgot to call you out on it. But that, I'll happily, that is I'll, a gripe of mine. The checks notes um, is, is frowned upon, <laughs> at least by me. By, by me. I, so, I, might, I might slip it in now more. There you go. To, and that's, fine. Yeah. that's fine. That's <laughs> fine. Uh, but yeah, I, I just uh, told Mike that I'd call you out on that. 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. 215-592-9494. But I did want to get to this real quick because he's talking about the Phillies farm system and the Phillies farm system failures can be summed up by looking at one player and it's Scott Kingery. I mean, I have not like the, the fall that Scott Kingery has taken in what two years is astonishing for a guy who was it going into the 18 in 2018. It was going into right. That they gave him the contract first year Gabe. Yeah. Yes. And I remember in spring training, everybody from Angelo, everybody on the station, Scott Kingery, you can't leave him down in AAA for the first week of the season. You need him too bad. He's too important of a player. And I don't know what's happened to this guy, but he stinks. I mean, he just flat out stinks. He's coming to the plate. You know what's going to happen. It's like, just let Kingery strike out. Let him go back to the dugout and move on. Now, the one thing he's supposed to be able to do is field. That play in the bottom, was it the bottom of the 12th that he fielded that ball, tried to go to third base? And, and DD was like struggling to get over to cover on the bunt. And it was a good slide by, uh, it might have been Ozuna. I'm not exactly sure. I have to was. go look at the play the inning. It may have been Albies. I'm not sure. But, like, he double pumps going to short. Now, maybe. I guess maybe it was because DD had trouble getting over there, but like Scott Kingery should not be in the major leagues right now. And the only reason he is in the major leagues, and as far as I see it, is because the Phillies are trying to justify the contract. Like, and I know he wasn't there to start the year, but you have better, you got to have better options. You got to have better options. I mean, let Maton be your super utility guy in the infield. Like, yeah, he doesn't necessarily have that outfield versatility yet. He's working on, you know, taking balls out there with, uh, I I think, mixed results. Um, and I don't think they feel comfortable playing him in the outfield yet. But Scott Kingery can't be on this roster right now. Like, I don't know what you got to do to get him right. I don't know if he is salvageable at this point. But he's just not a major league player. And, I mean... I just, I don't know what has gone wrong. Um, you can blame Kapler and Maley and the coaching staff all you want. Did they have something to do with it? Maybe, perhaps. I, I mean, they probably did to an extent, but some of these other guys have been able to get fixed. Like Reese Hoskins hasn't been a lost cause forever. Um, I don't think it's playing different positions in the field. But, you know, Scott Kingery really sums up 
the Phillies farm system failures perfectly. Is This is the guy they were really banking on as being the prospect that was going to become a star. And three years, four, now in year four of this contract, he doesn't even look like a major leaguer. And um, he's got no trade value. He offers you nothing on your current roster. And I don't know what you do with him. And he really sums up in many ways uh, the Phillies farm system failures, which according to John Middleton himself, go back a uh, hundred years. 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. 215-592-9494. When we get back, we'll talk some Eagles uh, with Mike in South Philly and then you if you want to get in. I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP, I'm Tom Kelly. I really was getting somewhat worried down at the ballpark as that game was in the 12th inning when the Braves tied it at seven. I was legitimately concerned because uh, if you didn't hear earlier, I was engineering the game uh, down at the ballpark in the booth with with Scott Fransky and Kevin Franzen and and Greg Murphy. And I mean, I I, I was thinking in the ninth, okay, well, Hector's going to close this thing out. At that point, it was like, I don't know, 1020, 1030. We'll do a little 25-minute post-game show. I'll be at at WIP by 11.30, 12 o'clock, which is the time I normally get here for my shifts. So I'm like, all right, I'm perfect. And then, you know, this game continues on, and it's it's 12.10, and the game is still going on, and I've started to worry. I'm like, I'm, I mean, if this game goes much longer, I might not be able to make it. Well, Ricky was telling me he was racing down from Yankee Stadium today to try and yeah. get here for his shift. Me and Ricky are both grinding, man. That's what's You happening. are. You, you both were at Major League Stadiums today and rushed here. He's rushing down the turnpike. You're rushing from the ballpark, but the Phillies game obviously went a lot later. And the difference is he's he was at a ballpark actually watching a game at the ballpark he was at. You were watching it on a TV I was watching stream. it on a TV from a Major League, which honestly, just to be honest, for these road games, it is, it is kind of a bit of a letdown. I mean, you're at the ballpark. You want to be watching a game right in front of well, you. So I was going to ask you about this really quick. What is the vibe? Like, it's got to be so weird. Just empty lights out. Just the three of us sitting in, in, in the but booth. But that's going to be like, you can hear a pin drop in that place with no one there. Yeah, I mean, we do have the crowd effects from, like, I get. You can the, hear the feed from Atlanta. Right. I get the feed from Atlanta and pull that up. So, yeah, but it's, yeah. But it's still, pretty, you look out and there's nothing. I've never no. been in a stadium just like. Dark. Just dark. Yeah. It's just dark. Yeah. It's 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 weird. Definitely. Uh, two one five five nine two. 9494 if you want to get in. But if you want to get on the Eagles Sixers as well, Sixers now two games away. Their magic numbers at two from Clinch in the one seed. And I mean, it's exciting. And um, I think the excitement will ramp up over the next couple of weeks. I mean, uh, that's something we, we've uh, we talked about and I've heard a little bit is, you know, the excitement's not what it normally would be for a Sixer team that's competitive. I, mean, I think a lot of different things go into that. The regular season being what it is this year. Um, shortened, obviously, you know, COVID still looming over everything. Um, but once we get to the playoffs, I mean, and I think all these stadiums as the playoffs go on will be increasing in attendance. I think it will feel more like playoff basketball. And, um, I think that excitement will start ramping up. And we talked about the importance of getting that one seat and, uh, it appears the Sixers are going to get it. And that, that is is just so big. I mean, it increases their chances of going to the NBA Finals significantly. Like, I don't know if I can put a, a percentage on it, um, 
but it increases their chances of going to the NBA Finals in a major, major way. The fact that they'd likely only need to beat Brooklyn or Milwaukee to get to the Finals um, rather than both of them. 215-592-9494. Also, Eagles as well, if you want to get on and get in on anything uh, pertaining to them, uh, you're welcome to. Let's go to Mike in South Philly. What's up, Mike? Yeah, how's it going, Tom? Good, man. How are you? You're not bad. Um, see, I wanted to, I wanted to touch on one of the things that you were talking about the last, um, you know, few uh, appearances where, okay. you, you know, you're talking about whether you think the Eagles can compete in a division. I don't, but at the same time, I really don't even want them to. Like, I think there's a, a chance that they could, but I think it would be contingent upon Nick Sirianni being like a like a really legit like. Maybe not quite at Kyle Shanahan level, but close to it. Um, so not are, not quite a, like a McVay, but like kind of you know a poor man's McVay or Shanahan, or, you know something like that, I right. guess. Um, but I just I would rather they win four games next year than eight games, to be honest with you. And I know the counter argument to that would be, and, and I'm sure I mean you know the reason why. Like I just think in general, like remember during the season last year. I was, you know, as we were getting, you know, toward December, I was just saying at this point, I honestly don't want them to win any games. And I got why people, when they were watching the games, they were rooting for them to win because obviously from an entertainment perspective. Um, but remember, I was always consistent with the fact that would have been better off if they lost. And I think time, you know, has proven that to be true, considering that if the Eagles would have won a few extra games at the end of that season, they would not have Devontae Smith right now or that Miami first round pick. I mean, they just wouldn't. Yeah, no, I would, and I'll let you continue, Mike. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I think, uh, I think you're 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 right about that in that respect. And I mean, um, I saw something. I forget what it was, but yeah, the Giants win over the Cowboys. I mean, that in Week 17, that cost them. That cost them Devontae Smith. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so being that, I think even the most optimistic Eagles fans can agree that they're not going to be a Super Bowl uh, contender next year anyway. You know, what the heck is the difference winning a few extra games if it could cost you so much? And when I say cost you so much, I mean, I think it could, I mean, if they get like another top five pick, you know, I mean, you could do so much with that. First of all, it would be valuable if they wanted to trade for a veteran star quarterback like a Watson or a Wilson, or you're closer to draft your quarterback of the future if Jalen Hurts isn't the guy. So, I mean, you could either take the guy that you want there, or if you need to move up, you could, you're, you're, it's, it'll be easier to do so. Or if Jalen Hurts proves to be the guy, then you have another top pick to add blue chip talent to help him. Well, like, I'm, I'm guessing if you, if you win four games, I'm guessing Jalen Hurts has proven he isn't the guy, though. Well, that's probably true, but my counter to that would be, you know, Watson, he threw for like 5,000 yards and yeah. 70% completions, and they only won four games. So, True. I mean, so the obvious counter to my point would be, well, if you'd rather them win four games than eight, that probably goes to show you that a lot of the Eagles' young talent's probably going to suck, and that's not good. So, I mean, if I could get the best of both worlds where it could be like a Texans-type situation where the Eagles would win four games, but Devontae Smith puts up a big year, Jalen Hurts looks good, Rager shows improvement. If I could get the best of both worlds, I would take that. Yeah, um, yeah, now, and, 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 yeah, no, yeah, and I yeah. think you know where I stand on this generally, Mike. That Like, yeah. I want the team to be successful, but I, I like your general point, I, you know, I wouldn't be devastated. I'll, let me put it this way. I want them to win. I want them to, you know, if they could be eight and nine, nine and eight, and win the division, I would prefer that. But 
I'll say this. Like, I wouldn't be heartbroken if they win four games if they do show those signs you're talking about. You know, if they show signs where even if you're not totally sold on Hurts, but you know Devontae Smith was a home run pick, Rager looks a lot better, you know, the Miles Sanders looks better, the offensive line plays well, and you, you at least get a couple guys on defense that, that – look like they could be parts of your future, that I still think that could be a, a productive season moving. Right, yeah, because I was actually going to ask you that as a follow-up. Like, you know, because I've heard some people, like, legitimately angry that they took Landon Dickerson, who might not start for the Eagles next year. They're like, well, I mean, what are they going to do? And I'm like, you know, like, would you, would anybody honestly really care for a fan base that isn't, it's not like this is a Super Bowl or bust year where if they didn't make it, you would be devastated. It's like, is there, is there anybody out there who would really be devastated if the Eagles won four games next year? Like the, the, the diehard people who are just like so, so rah-rah Eagles maybe, but I would say like 95% of the fan base, I don't think anybody in the city would truly be devastated if those things happened like you said, but they also won four games. Like yeah. I think people would be, would, would pe- people would be cool with it. But what I don't know with, with some people, Mike, and, and like – you remember the the backlash to the Eagles tanking away Week 17, that which I didn't get because like why do you want the Eagles to win that game? Like there are right. some people that just you know, and I I get it. You know, you're you're a hardcore fan. Um, some people just don't view it that way, I guess, and um, don't have more of a, a long term approach with it. But I mean, I see it more. I, I I guess I'm kind of in the middle. Like at the beginning of a season, until you're math mathematically eliminated. I want to see this team compete, but once they're out of it, like last year, once they lost in Dallas, of course I didn't want them beating Washington. Right, right. <clears throat> now, taking my personal, what, you know, what I want personally out of it, just looking at it from an objective perspective, here's why I don't think they will compete in a division. For one, I think the division's vastly improved. I think it might be the most improved division in the NFL. Now, I don't think the ceiling of any team in this division is a Super Bowl contender, but it was pretty much the worst division in the history of sports last year, and I think you know, Dallas is getting their quarterback back, and they're, remember, they're entire, I think they literally lost their entire starting offensive line. Like, I think every single player on that team at some point or, was lost. So they'll be getting them back healthy. I think Dallas will probably be the team that's beaten the division if, if those two aspects of their roster remain healthy. Um, the Giants added multiple receivers. They added some good quality defense. Um, and then Washington – was always going to be a team on the rise. They're really only missing a quarterback, but I think Fitzpatrick is definitely at this point better than Alex Smith, who, you know, I mean, it was absolutely an admirable story coming back on that light, but he just didn't have it. I mean, we saw it in that game at the end of the season. Alex Smith has nothing left. Right. Um, and and he obviously Chase Young and a lot of their young defensive players are going to get better. Um, and I think, if you remember, the Eagles only won four games last year, and two of those games were against that crappy division. I just, if you go through each aspect of the Eagles team, I can't really find many position, many areas that they're the best at in this division. If Ertz stays, I think you could say tight end. They probably have the best tight end group in, the, in this division. Um, I think offensive line is close. I would still take a healthy Dallas offensive line over the Eagles. Um, but other than that, like, what area are they the best at in this division? They have the worst receivers. They have the worst corners, the worst linebackers. Um, I mean, the coach is unproven, and until Hurts proves something, they have the worst quarterback. You know, now obviously that could change by November if Hurts has lightened it up. But as of right now, you can't say that Hurts is better than anybody in the. No, I mean you, you can't say that right now. But I, I do see like I'll see, like I see an upside with this offense where I think this offense could be pretty good. Now, 
obviously, you know, we don't know about Sirianni. We don't know about Hurts. And ultimately, let's face it, those two guys are going to be what this season hinges on, whether it's deemed successful or not. Like, regardless right. of the win total, if Hurts and Sirianni look like they are competent and they, you know, are going to be good at what they do for years to come, I look at that as a successful season. Like, um, especially with Sirianni. I think Sirianni is, is by far the most important person to keep an eye on this year. Um, but, yeah, if, if Sirianni and Hurts are good, I think this could be a, a very good offense. And defensively, I mean, yeah, the, the corners aren't great. Um, the the safeties, you know, they're not great. But the Eagles secondary uh, a few years ago hasn't been great. You know, their, their corners for years have been a problem. Um, linebacker, I think, is a position in this league that we generally – Overrate, and they added there as well, and yeah. and the defensive line I think is a pretty good shape. So like I see, I see, a, I do envision a scenario in which this team could be nine and eight and win the NFC East. Like I don't think that possibility is is outlandish. Well, put it to you, if if Sirianni is legit, and then hey, Jalen Hurts is legit, and you know Rager and Fulgham, um, you know, improve then I think they could get to maybe seven, maybe eight wins. I still think it would take ten this, nine or ten this, this upcoming year to win the division. Um, but I think Sirianni is by far the biggest question mark. Yeah. Like, I can think I can ballpark what Jalen Hurts is going to be. I think he's never going to have elite arm strength. He's never going to have elite accuracy. But I think he can make some nice throws. And obviously, he's, he, has, he, has a really, he has legs. He's athletic. But Sirianni, I have no clue what to well, expect. Well, no. real, real quick, Mike, yeah. do you – like, what have you made of the things that Sirianni has said? Because I, and obviously you can't take too much from this stuff, but when you get past the, you know, uncomfortability or whatever, and you listen to what he says, I think he said some things that, that give you hope he's going to be a pretty good coach. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I don't really make much out of what coaches say. Um, I mean, I don't think he's said anything bad. I mean, you know, I, I certainly think that it's more, you know, the content, in what they say is more important than how they say it. I think yeah. people were freaking out when he was stumbling and bumbling. Doug, Doug Peterson was not a good speaker, you know, early on in his Eagles co- uh, tenure anyway. Here's what has me mo- most optimistic about Sirianni than anything. From listening to people who know him, they say he's really good at, with res- receivers. So if he can develop receivers, which the Eagles haven't done, I mean, they've been bad at drafting them, but they've also been bad at developing them. If he can develop the receivers on the roster – then I think this offense has some upside. But I still think ultimately, I'm not saying it's impossible. I just think the other three teams in the division are still better. Yeah, no, I hear you, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Thanks. And yeah, I mean, I, I I get it. And yeah, until the Eagles prove it, they are going to be looked at as the worst team in the division. But I just look at it from a standpoint of, I, the Giants, I just don't believe in. Like, I don't think, and I know there are questions about the Eagles coaching quarterback. I feel like I know about the Giants coaching quarterback. I know Daniel Jones isn't any good. I don't think Joe Judge is a very good head coach. I mean, you know their offensive coordinator sucks. I mean, I mean Jason Garrett, we've watched him for over a decade now. Um, I, and, you know, I, I just don't think that organization is very well run. I, I, I do not fear the Giants at all. Um, Washington, we'll see. I mean, I think going into the season... With Ryan Fitzpatrick as your plan A is not a good plan A to have. Like, Ryan Fitzpatrick is a competent quarterback in this league, but he's a perennial backup for a reason. Like, nobody wants to trust him. 
to be the starter for their organization. And, I mean, I don't trust Ryan Fitzpatrick to be consistent for 16 games. And Dallas is perennially disappointing. Now, we'll see. If I had to pick right now who's going to win the NFC East, I think, I mean, I would pick Dallas. I wouldn't even think twice about it, really. But Dak's coming off a very serious injury. I mean, Mike McCarthy, I don't think, is a very good head coach. That defense was a a, a train wreck last year. And, yeah, I, I just don't see this division being incredibly improved. And I do envision a scenario, like, and I don't know. I think the Eagles' range of of win totals this year is pretty wide, honestly. Like, I could see a world in which they go 3-14. and 14. I could see a world in which they go 9-8. and eight. And anywhere in between, I wouldn't really be all that surprised. So, um, yeah, I think it's a wide range. And in the end, I think it's all going to come down to Hurts and Sirianni. And uh, the positive thing that I will say about Sirianni is um, I, I do believe that he he has a, a good football mind. And the things that he said about how he is is adamant, and it was the question after the Eagles selected Devontae Smith that he answered uh, more with more conviction than I'd say any question he's answered in his time in Philadelphia so far was uh, about Devontae Smith and where he fits in the offense and where he'll line up and all this stuff. And and he basically said, no, that's not the way we, we do it. Like, we're not going to fit Devontae Smith into a spot. We are going to move him around. We are going to mold our offense around what our players do well. That's something I believe in. That's in our That's our philosophy. And I was a big fan of Doug Peterson. I mean, I was very strong at the end of last season saying I did not think Doug should be fired and I don't think Doug necessarily deserved to be fired but that wasn't Doug's strong suit fitting guys into his system um, or, or I mean building his offense around the players he had he tried fitting guys in and generally I agree with uh, Sirianni's philosophy much more that you fit your system to your players not the other way around 215-592-9494 um, when we get back, we'll talk some Sixers. I see Bill is on the line, and I see the Weave is on the line. So we'll talk to you guys when we get back. I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly with you on a Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there, um, including my wife. It's her first Mother's Day, so happy Mother's Day uh, to her. Um we will uh, we'll enjoy a nice little a nice little uh, Mother's Day socially distanced, you know. Go to uh, my mom's house and her family's house, and it, it it'll be nice. It's a little nicer now that everybody's getting vaccinated. Pretty much everybody in all our families is vaccinated now, so you know you still take the precautions, but it's a little more a little more at ease, you know, a little more relaxing. So that's good. Um, so hope everybody enjoys their Mother's Day, whatever they have planned. No Phillies Mother's Day baseball. Phillies, once again on Sunday. I can't remember the last time the Phillies were on Sunday night baseball this much, like, early in the season. Um, this is, I guess what, this would be three out of the six Sunday night games, I guess, so far the Phillies have been Second time in Atlanta, too. Yeah, second time in Atlanta. Obviously, last time, um, controversy. And 
one thing that's cool that the Atlanta, uh, and I didn't know this till doing the games the other night, and Kevin Franzen had mentioned it, um, that the Atlanta organ player will play a different song for every opposing hitter that comes to the plate. And he played a song, Invisible Touch, for Alec Bohm. That's pretty good. It was good. really creative, and I, I saw someone catch this on Twitter. Because right. otherwise... You know, 99% of the people at the ballpark probably don't even recognize it or get the reference. You have to know the song. You have to know what happened. The and they, it was that guy or woman, I don't know who it is, the organ player down in Atlanta, who used to do some sort of reference to meeting at the altar for Aaron Altair. And, like, no one recognized. Like, they, he pulls out some, or whoever it is, pulls out some creative songs. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, he did a pretty good job with that one. Um, because Alec Bohm, obviously, last on that controversial play at the plate, um, Hopefully, Phils can get another win in Atlanta uh, on Sunday Night Baseball later tonight. Uh, 215-592-9494. Let's go to Bill Mayfair. What's up, Bill? Hey, what's up, buddy? Coming at you live from Franklin and Kaufman, which, by the way, question, question, can the Sixers return me and the rest of the Mayfair people to our glory days of Frankfurt and Kaufman, number one? Can they? I mean, sure they can. I mean, they're going to be the number one seed in the East. Um, their road to the finals, um, I think, will be relatively easy compared to Milwaukee and to uh, Brooklyn, who are going to have to play each other uh, in the All second right. round. So, yeah, I think the Sixers have a legitimate shot this year. Okay, number one. Number two, the fighting fills. I mean, obviously, before tonight's game, they were probably one of the hottest teams in baseball. And, you know, tonight's game, you know, my question to you is, what do we do with Nerys, and what do we do with a closer? I mean, we're not going to go to the uh, playoffs and win the playoffs without a formidable reliever. So what's your predicament, and your, what's your pick and your choice on that? I wouldn't have Nerys be the closer anymore, Bill. And, you know, I, right. when, when, when it really comes down to it, it's this simple. And I asked the question earlier on, like, if you had a game you needed to win, like either to get into the playoffs, playoff game, wild card game, whatever, and you had a one-run lead going into the ninth inning, would you be confident in Nectar and Hector Naris closing that game? And my answer is no. And I don't know if they have a better option, but I'm willing to see. Like, I'd rather try Coonrod or Bradley or Alvarado in that spot. Um, but I'm I'm done with Hector as the closer, at least for now. If other guys fail, maybe you go back to it. But I, I would move him out of there for now. Right. That's what I was thinking. Perhaps make Naris the eighth eighth inning guy and, and now we're out of the closer. But, yeah, I mean, know. I'd probably make Naris more of like a sixth, seventh inning guy and, and kind of, you know, right. take a little pressure off. All right. And number three, you know, I never realized that at three o'clock in the morning, Wawa Cheeseburger is like surf and turf at Del Frisco at seven o'clock. <laughs> what, what, what do you mean? You, well, Wawa Cheeseburger? I don't think I've ever had a cheeseburger from Wawa. They, they, yeah, they sell cheeseburgers and fries now. Oh, yeah, I never <laughs> had that. I, I Maybe I'll have to try that out. Um, but listen, they're not self tell first coach. <laughs> right. But three in the morning are good. There you go. Well, I appreciate it, Bill. You guys are Thanks. great. Take it easy. Have a good one. I'll watch cheeseburger. Have you ever had that item, Dan? I, I think it's new. I feel like I've heard that it's new. I have never had it. I could go for a little Wawa later on. I mean, I, I had Wawa yesterday at this point, but early, earlier today, basically. You know what I love that aren't not good for you, but I, 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 sometimes will break down after I, you know, filling in for big daddy. I'll usually do it. If I will do it, I'll do it on my, after my Tuesday into Wednesday shift, because I do typically these four shifts in a row. Um, I am off tomorrow night, uh, but um, typically I'll do the Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday overnight. 
So Wednesday morning, I'll stop home and I'll get a sizzly. Because sizzlies are just delicious, but they are not very good for you. No, they're not. I was never a big sizzly guy. The, the, the thing, it's not really a Wawa thing. The thing that I break down on is you ever have the grandma's oatmeal raisin cookies out of the packet? Uh, yeah, I've had oatmeal raisin. I, I don't know if I've had that exactly. They're brand. soft. It's so good. That Their milkshakes are pretty good. I, there, there's a lot of things. If, if you just find yourself taking a lap in a Wawa, you start eating with your eyes a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah. It, it's not necessarily a good thing. Wawa's. Well, we all know Wawa's great. Uh, 215-592-9494. Let's check in with The Weave. What's happening, Weave? Yo, Yo. you guys are like freaking lightning in a bottle. Is that right, Weave? Why is Yee, that? I appreciate man. I appreciate the compliment. Your, your show, your show is number one. It's, it's the hottest show, number one at the Walmart in town. All right, and you know, I'm sorry that some of these people already went to sleep. You know, what I mean? <laughs> because yeah, you know, it is what it is. We've out on you, man, Tomka. Well, you know thank. I mean? Well, I appreciate it, Weave. Thank you. I think that's. Oh cool. my God, the king of radio, um, king. yo, and Mike, man, I don't know whether Mike is depressed or what his problem is, but um, for the Eagles to win four games, that's just not acceptable. You know what I mean? Well, they I mean, a, they have a good quarterback. Um, th- I think Howie really made some decent moves, and I thought you were a Howie um, hater, Weave. <laughs> uh, at one point, um, when he um is like he didn't show up, he. But I'm gonna tell you something else. Uh, the Sixers coach, um, my son was over here today, Tony Junior. He has he has his own business. We we got a couple of houses, right? We're living good over here in Elkton. And um I said to him, I said, um, yo, I said, Tony, I said, what about um the um Sixers? We're talking about the Sixers and I, he he was saying that the Sixers won, but they were down by 20. I mean, they were up by 20. And then all of a sudden, and I said, what about Shakes Milton? And right away he went to the fact that they really do need a point guard. You know what I mean? Yeah, we've, no, that's a good point. I mean, Shake Milton has been, to me, the most disappointing player on the team this year. Like, he, I expected him to be a, a legitimate contributor off the bench, and He's just not very good. Like I, I don't know what else to say. Like he commits dumb fouls. He does. He makes dumb plays. Um, he's not but shooting you know the ball. Well. He's not scoring. I, I honestly, at this point, I, I don't know if he'd be in my playoff rotation if I was Doc Rivers. Okay. Here, here, here's what he said. He said, I said to him, I said, well, you know, he, oh, he said that now you have the other point guard coming in, um. Uh, George Hill? You got George Hill coming in. I said, Tony, how big is it? He said he's 6'1". I said, okay, Tony, now we're looking at going up against the Nets, right? I said, do you think he can do anything with Kyrie Irving? Because I'm going to tell you right now, that would be a problem. But Tony, my son, he's very, very smart. 
Um, he won a state championship in football at Elkton. Congratulations to Tony Jr. The only one they ever won as a DB. But anyway, he graduated from Towson. He's got his own business. And he said to me, he said, you know what? They need a point guard. So, um, but he's so smart. He said that if the Sixers can win the next three games, then in the playoff situation that Milwaukee and the Nets are going to have to play each other if the Sixers get the number one seed and they won't even have to look at, they're going to have to look at the winner of that game. Right. And um, you know what? Then we started talking about Ben Simmons and you know what? He, 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 he's very down on Ben Simmons. He said, Ben Simmons, he's got a sloppy jump shot. He, the only moves he's really has is a layup and a, and a dunk. And, um, and I, I, I said to him, I said, well, this guy is really good on defense, but, um, you know what? This is what it's going to come down to. And we really need to start building the Sixers up because the Sixers have an excellent shot at, you know, winning the championship. But he, this is what Tony also said to me. Doc Rivers, what is with him? He seems like he's either asleep or drunk. Oh, I got you know I, mean? I got you, Weave. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for the call. I thought that was a pretty good Weave call, even though he's relaying a lot of his son's points. I need Weave's own takes. But – We'll talk about some of the things we've brought up when, when we get back. Because I actually did think he brought up some uh, some good points in regards to the Sixers bench. And I want to talk about what this, what this rotation is going to look like as we head into the playoffs. Because, you know, apparently Doc said tonight, after the game, said something concerning. So we'll, we'll touch on that when we get back. 215-592-9494. I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly with you on a Mother's Day Sunday morning. Uh, We'll get to Jim in one second here, but I did want to talk about something with the Sixers real quick. Um, As Doc Rivers said something um, that I found to be kind of troubling after the game. Uh, Maybe troubling is a little harsh, but uh, somewhat concerning if he really feels this way. but obviously, recently the Sixers, their bench has struggled mightily. And Doc Rivers said after this game that in the playoffs, he would be comfortable playing 11 guys deep on his roster. And I could not disagree with that more. Like, you need to, 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 to shorten your rotation. And this is something that normally, you know, you take it at, you know, it's just Doc pumping his bench guys up, whatever. But this is something that Doc Rivers has had a propensity to do in the playoffs in the past, and it's come back to bite him. He did it last year with the Clippers, where he wouldn't stop playing Lou Williams, even though Lou Williams, who we like in this city, was having a, a brutal playoff run. And I hope that is not the truth, because the Sixers need to get down to, I'd say, eight or nine guys they really feel comfortable because um, the all-bench unit is a disaster. I mean, we've seen it now in multiple games against bad teams. San Antonio, 
Chicago, I mean, Chicago, they blew a 20-point lead in a matter of, of minutes. It was astonishing how quickly that lead disappeared. to a Chicago team that didn't have Zach Levine, didn't have Nikola Vucevic. Um, against New Orleans on Friday night, same thing. You cannot rely on the guys on that bench right now to be legit. The hiccups a little bit here, sorry. Uh, to be legit players for you in the postseason. And the way I look at the Sixers, I don't even view them as having five starters. I view them as having three legitimate starters. Embiid, Simmons, Harris. Everybody else is interchangeable. Seth Curry, Danny Green, I I look at them more than anything as like your top two, you know, role players. And everybody else is kind of a role player. Dwight Howard will obviously have a role in the playoffs. He is... Joel Embiid's backup. He will play the minutes Joel Embiid does not play. But other than that, who do you have confidence in? Like, I I personally don't feel confident in Shake Milton right now. I don't. I do not look at him as a guy that you can rely on. He's too inconsistent. He does not defend. He, he, he is not shooting the ball well. And he, and he just, he makes a lot of dumb plays. And... He's really frustrated me this year. I mean, I, I'm looking at Dwight Howard being a guy you can use. I think the Sixers really actually need Furkan Korkmaz back. He's actually one of the guys off that bench that I do feel comfortable with. Um, George Hill, I'm assuming, will have a role since you traded for him. Um, he'll probably have a role. And Thibel, I think, will have a role because of the defense that he can play. But I would, right now, I wouldn't be playing Shake Milton in the playoffs. Um, Tyrese Maxey, I like his potential moving forward. Maybe Maxey is a guy you can put in if your team's like struggling and you need a spark. I think Maxey could provide that, but he's not a guy that I am really relying on come playoff time. And please no Mike Scott. I mean, just please no Mike Scott. Um, but that's what I'd be looking at with the rotation is your starters, um, you know, including Kerry and Green, then, you know, your bench guys, I'd be looking at Dwight, ha- Dwight Howard. Man, these hiccups. I, this never happened to me on the air before. I've had the hiccups on the air. Uh, Dwight Howard, Korkmaz, um, you know, uh, George Hill, Matisse Thibel. That's the nine that I'd go to come postseason. 215-592-9494. Let's go to Jim. What's up, Jim? Did you not name Maxie Tom in your last nine? Yeah, I don't. I, I would not have Maxi as one of my nine in the playoffs, Jim. I want to give you an argument for that, brother. That's sure. an investment. He, he's going to be around for God knows how long. We will have him for ten years, so I invest a lot of things. Well, yeah, but uh, but I'm talking about this year in the postseason. I don't think he's Agreed. ready yet. Yeah. Agreed. But you don't think we're winning it this year, do you? Why? Why wouldn't the Sixers be able to win it this year? What? He what else would the goal? A bunch be? of bugs besides the starting three. You, I mean, they're they're going to finish number one in the East. Jim, I mean, I'm not asking you that. I yeah, but said you don't think they're going to win this year? Do I, you? I, I think they could. I mean, who who do you think that it, it's inconceivable they could they could beat? Obviously, it's the Nets. Who else is there? There's nobody else. I don't know if they're going to end up seeing the Nets, Jim. I mean, the Nets lost to Milwaukee twice last week. They're going to have to play I, Milwaukee. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I don't think the Nets are anything special either. I don't think you could go all year and just worry about the what's in there, the playoffs, and think you're going to mesh. So I'm not that worried about the Nets either. I do expect the Sixers to come out of the East. But I don't expect them to beat the Lakers. But that's the well. Why do you think My the Lakers? The Lakers might be in the play-in, Jim. 
I don't care where they are, as long as LeBron's on the team and they get into the playoffs. I don't care where they are. Not to mention Anthony Davis, too. You don't doubt that team, do you, once they get in the playoffs? I don't know. I mean, they, they, they've they been banged up all year long. I mean, they're going to have a rough road <laughs> to go through way. in the West. Do you think Vegas will doubt that team in the playoffs? I'm not sure. I mean, I, 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 would, I, I have doubts about them. Sure I do. I don't think Vegas is going to doubt them. I don't, I don't think he's going to be able to make any money off of what's in there. Not being an underdog against uh, LeBron and Anthony Davis still aren't healthy. If they're not healthy, that team doesn't have a chance. Yeah, but they're not that bagged up where they're not going to be healthy. And it's like they have, like, freaking ACL injuries. They just got minor little bumps and, you know, whatever, bruises. Davis missed, like, three months. Yeah, brother. Yeah, that's what's called uh, management, right? What's Maybe. I mean, I, don't, I, I yeah. think it was more than that, but um, – We'll see, but yeah, Jim. I mean, if they come out of the East, they'd have a chance. I mean, you you just think they they would have no chance in the NBA Finals? Not honestly, they have no chance. I said I just don't think they'll beat the Lakers. Okay, because of what I'm just going to say with Maxi, you got to invest. He's got to get what's his experience somehow, right? So a few years from now, when we want Maxi to be one of the better players in the NBA, where's he going to get that experience from? I'd play him this year myself. So I'd yeah, want to well, get a point with him. Yeah, well, I think it's just a difference of philosophy. Like, I'm looking at this year as, as I'm trying to win a title if I'm the Sixers. I'm not looking to, to develop Tyrese Maxi in this playoffs. That's not yeah, you're that's not on my, my concern list. Yeah, you're reserved to them possibly winning the championship. I myself don't see it with this team, but it is. I, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. Yo, cuz, you got to hold what's man too. <laughs> To some kind of standard, though. What's his name? The dude just had all I like him a lot. He's oh, the weed. That's weed, yeah. Weave. Dude, when he said to you that <laughs> Ben Simmons only had two moves, a layup and a dunk, you, you got to correct him, dude. You got to say, look, weave, that's the result of a move. He right. backs people down. He fades away. He can go by anybody in a flash or the freaking fast break. He's got moves out. As Let me let me put this one. Let me explain uh, what's the name. Ben Simmons to anybody else out there who's a, a, a novice when it comes to basketball. Ben Simmons does everything else at an A+. plus. I'll, I'll say it again, A-plus ability except for shoot the ball. Everything else. Anything else you can think about in basketball that you do. Rebound, play defense, see the court, in shape. He does it all A-plus, correct? Yeah, no, no I, no, I agree, Jim, but I will say, I mean, this – Postseason is going to be a big test for him. Like he cannot Agreed. be the reason their offense bogs down in the playoffs. Agreed. Yeah. So yeah, I, I appreciate it, man. Um, yeah, and I I think this is going to be a big postseason for Ben Simmons. And I, yeah, I'm not worried about developing Tyrese Maxey this postseason. Like this is about winning. And yeah, I do think this team has a legitimate chance. Um, but the old bench unit's got to stop. Like in the playoffs. You need to have absolutely at all times one of those three guys on the floor, whether it's Harris, Simmons, or Embiid. And I would say 40 to 45 minutes, you got to have two of them out on the floor. Like, I would not, you cannot continue to mess around with this old bench lineup that gets, gets slaughtered every time they're out there. You just can't do it. And Doc Rivers got to, got to, change course with that in the postseason. And if you're going to, I'll add one more thing. You can't have, if you're going to work Matisse into the game, he's out there for defense, but you can't put him, like, it can't just only be Ben and Matisse out there. Like, you have to have a primary well, scoring option of, like, Tobias or Joel if you're going to have Matisse out right. there for defense. You can't just stick and, the defensive lineup out and expect to win a playoff series. And I think Thibel's going to play a lot in the playoffs. They're going to need his defense. I'm looking at this team, you know, we're mentioning what the rotation is going to be. I'm with you. Maxi. 
I don't think is ready for big time playoff. Maybe games. if you need a spark or something at some point. But um, he he's not going to be in your playoff no, rotation. No. It is concerning that Doc thinks he can go eleven deep. I'm working right. the other way. Like I'm hoping they clinch this one seed in the next couple of nights and they can just totally punt this back to not back to back, but this these two games yeah. with Orlando, get everyone rested. There's going to be a longer layoff because of this play-in tournament. And get Joel Embiid ready to play like 40 minutes a night because you're going to need it. And they really do need Korkmaz back. I mean, they he do. was playing well before he went down. So yeah, And he's kind of the other side of the coin with Thibel and right. offense, not as much defense. And his defense has improved a little bit. So yeah, that's an important guy to get back as well. Um, but coming up next, I did want to let you hear uh, the Howie Roseman interview. Obviously, everybody wanted to hear what Howie had to say this week. He joined Angelo on Tuesday morning. So uh, that's coming up next. Uh, I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio 94 WIP. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Momentarily, we should be joined by uh, Howie Roseman. I want everybody to understand where I'm starting with this. Uh, the process of getting ready for a draft is months in the making. In fact, the last three Eagles draft before this one did not go well at all. I think by most accounts, you saw the product of what they ended up with. Not great, right? But all this excitement is built into the first pick, especially when you have an early one. Eagles had six, went down to 12. Harry Roseman said when they went down, we think at 12, there will be one of the people we really treasure. We're safe at 12. Mm -hmm. I guess they weren't. Right. Because when they got to 10, actually, when they got to 9, they realized Devontae they might have was to still go there. back up. Yeah. Well, no, this is the first thing. So now Denver's on the clock yeah. at 9. Everybody thinks Denver's going quarterback. They don't, all right? That's a big moment in what happens <laughs> yes. next is that. And then you get to 10. Nobody expected what would happen next. Here's what happened. The Dallas Let's... Cowboys have traded the 10th pick to the Philadelphia Eagles. With the 10th pick in the 2021 NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select Devontae Smith, wide receiver, Alabama. What a moment. I know what I felt. What did Howie Roseman feel? Ladies and gentlemen, the GM of the Eagles, Howie Roseman. Hi, Howie. Good morning. Long time. No speak. Uh, good, good to be to, back with you. Well, good to have you, Howie. Howie, I just played the announcement of the trade that got you Devontae Smith. Tell me your emotions in that moment. What was that like? Devontae Smith has been on our radar for so long. You know, he catches the game-winning touchdown pass to win the national championship as a true freshman. This is a guy who's just an unbelievable player, an unbelievable person. And, you know, you don't want to go into the draft and say, got to have it. But when we saw this guy falling into the range that we were picking, we said, we got to have it. All right. Now, Howie, here's the thing. You were at six where it was pretty safe you could have gotten him. But you mm -hmm. went to 12. There must have been other guys in addition to Smith that you loved in the top part of the draft. Is that true? That is true. There's no doubt about it. And when we were at six, we sat there and we said, we know how hard it is to get a first-round pick, but we also know – the frustration and struggle we had during the season. And we want to come out of it with a guy that we're high-fiving about, that we think can make a difference for our football team, and we know that is a good player and a good person. So we knew that we had the flexibility by getting that first-round pick, and we were willing to use it. All right, so here's where it got really – I know for a fact because I saw the tape. You called Denver at 9, right? When you <laughs> called – it's on the tape. It says, hey, say, hey, hi, Howie. 
<laughs> yeah. I know you yeah, did we, that. What were yeah. you doing there, Howie? Were you seeing what you were going to – did you consider going to nine instead of ten? No doubt. We tried right. to move up ahead of them, and uh, we knew that this was something that we wanted to get, especially the way the board was going. Uh, we wanted to come out with one of these difference maker players, and – uh, so we called them, and, and you know what I did, Angelo? I took that trade value chart, and, and I crumbled it up, and I threw it out because I knew that wasn't going to work in this situation, that we were going to have to go higher than that. And so uh, for us, uh, we, we traded the 84th pick, and we got a guy that we think is going to be a difference maker for our football team. At nine, are you looking at Smith or Sertan? Well, listen, obviously Devontae is a big-time player for us. So we were, we were going to get this guy and make sure that he got on our football team. You know, we got an offensive coach here. We think this guy's a difference maker. There are a lot of good players in this draft. Uh, but this was a guy that we felt uh, incredibly good about. All right, uh, Howie, I loved that you did what you did for a number of reasons. Can you tell the, the, the city this morning what you love about Devontae Smith? Well, I, I think you'd go the other way. What's not to love about Devontae Smith? I mean, this guy's work ethic is legendary. You know, if you, if you guys get a chance, there's articles all around about his work ethic, his route running, his hands, his length, his speed. You know, I think that one of the things that was really interesting, Angelo, is uh, they had four first-round picks of wide receiver on their team in 2019. And you look at the guy who's got the most targets on that team, it's Devontae Smith. You know, the ball finds Devontae Smith. You get to a, a situation where it's a third down, it's a big play in the game, and the quarterbacks are looking for Devontae Smith, uh, elite route runner. I mean, this guy is just a, an adult. He, it's just somebody that I think our fans are going to love. I, I picture a lot of six jerseys in our stadium in yep. the fall and for years to come. Absolutely. Now, the one you said what's not to like, the only thing they're criticizing is 166 pounds. Does that size worry you at all, Howard? So we had a, a lot of conversations about the size, Angelo, and I think for us, we get in a situation where you look at what this guy has done in the SEC, and, and there's been a lot of players that you go back and you can nick on the size, and you go Drew Brees, you know, um, there's a quarterback out west, and these guys are the exceptions because they've already done it at such a high level. That's what makes them special. I love it. All right, that was where you got – Unbelievable. How are you ever gotten praise like that since the Super Bowl? Right, people were going wild on Friday. Then you made a couple of picks that made people nervous. Let's start with Landon Dickerson. Second, obviously a phenomenal player, but with an extensive medical past. How hard did you weigh that and how difficult the decision was it to go with Dickerson in the second round? Well, these are all tough decisions here because there are still good players on the board. But Landon Dickerson is a difference maker. He's a difference maker as a player. He's a difference maker as a person. And if you're going to bet on a guy, he's the kind of guy you bet on. You know, when we watched Landon Dickerson, Angelo, we kept going, this guy's mentality reminds you of John Runyon. That's what he is. He is that kind of enforcer that you have on your football team. And he is such a good player. Uh, this guy, really, as we go forward – and we try to get back to that championship level, and we try to climb the mountain. This is a guy you want on your side. He wants to put people into the ground. He wants to bury guys. He's an athlete. Um, this guy's really a really, really good player. And you never have a chance to get a guy like this unless there are some questions. So we know it's a risk, but we think that it's a risk worth taking. All right. 
Howie, you relied. I, I heard what you said afterwards. Everybody wants him to be healthy because he could be really spectacular. But you said you relied on the medical staff, the training staff, to give their input. These guys are not having a great couple of years here. You guys have had so many injuries. Are you worried that – are you confident in your medical people to give you the information, the right information on a big decision like that? Yeah, we, we have great people there, Angela. I, I really believe that. And uh, injuries are a part of the game. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I, I think that you're going to see going forward that these people are really good at their jobs and we did our due diligence on this guy. I think I think you guys are going to love Landon Dickerson. Not like like him, love Landon Dickerson. All right. I hope he's healthy. It would be great if he is. Did you, did you see that story about what he did with his carport? Oh, uh, no. What happened there? He, he said during COVID, he set, up a, a work, he set up a workout facility for all the players. He had jugs machines. He brought freaking muscle milk to get their, them to get back with a shake. Um, this, this guy is an unbelievable leader and an unbelievable player. I love it. All right, let's get to the third round because there was some intrigue there as well. You trade down three spots. Um, you lost a couple of guys that were high on your board by doing that. Am I right? No. Well, no, I mean, not a couple of guys. Let, let me tell you the story about what happened there because I think you guys deserve it and uh, give you some insight into it. So when we're at, we're at pick 71, we have two guys – Two guys standing out on board, two defensive linemen, and they're different. They're different flavors. You know, one's a three technique. Uh, one is more of a nose tackle. And so, obviously, when you have different flavors, everyone likes different flavors. And so Carolina calls, and they're picking two picks behind us, and Scott Fitter says, hey, how you want to drop down two picks for, you know, our top of the six-round pick? And I said, you got to tell me offense, defense. He said, I'm taking an offensive player. So we know we're getting one of these two guys. And when we talk to our coaches about their fit and their role, they are excited about these two guys. And so, you know, one of them goes, and then we take Milton Williams. And I, I didn't even know where the cameras were, to be honest, as you probably know at this point. But <laughs> yes, when I, I saw that video of, of our defensive coordinator, how excited he was, that's the kind of passion people have about Milton Williams in our building. Milton Williams is an explosive three technique. He's an unbelievable person. You know, I, if you give kind of a comp, you think of like Malik Jackson and what he can do and the versatility to play outside and rush outside and then reduce inside. And, um, and then what happens in the sixth round is we end up getting the nose tackle. You know, we get Marlon, and, and I'm going to call him Marlon because if I mispronounce his last name, you're going to make fun of me. Right, we get right. Marlon in the sixth round who – you know, we had second down, second round, I'm sorry, second day grades on. So I think when we look at it, the way it worked out was really good. And you know what, Angelo, when you talk about the draft and the passion people have in the draft in our building, it's funny because someone said to me yesterday, if if people know, like discussion and debate and having these conversations, it's okay. You'd rather that. You'd rather have that passion. Now, Tom's been here for a long time. We've been together for 10 years um, extremely close relationship. Uh, it, it's okay to have tough convo- conversations, and Tom and I have had a lot of them in ten years. And you know that's why you want people around you who aren't going to just tell you everything you're doing is okay. They're going to give you their perspective, uh, and and we have that. And I think Andy said it really right uh, after the second day when he said, you know, our job is to make sure we're fulfilling the vision of the head coach. And, and this guy, fans are going to love Milton Williams. Um, Howie, I think you just solved a mystery. Tom Donahoe preferred Ali McNeil. Is that correct? 
Well, I, I don't know that he preferred. You'd have to ask him. But, it, you know, I, there were so many times during the draft where a player we liked got taken because you only have a certain number of picks, and there's, I don't know, 250 guys who get selected during the draft. So if our cameras were in our draft room during the whole draft, there were times Nick went, man, I can't believe that guy got taken. I mean, there were times that I did that. There were times that Tom did that. There were times that Andy did it. That's part of the draft. You want a guy, you get excited, you spend the whole year scouting him, and he gets taken. And so that happens, and a lot of times you don't see it. But you guys got an insight to it, and and it's okay. You know, you see the passion that we have about this. You know what's interesting, Howie? The framework of us seeing that, when all these investigative stories had come out, saying that Howie Roseman has his own draft board and Howie Roseman sometimes follows Howie Roseman or Jeff Lurie's instincts instead of those of the coach or, or, the, or the coaches or the scouts. Did less of that happen this year? Can you that, shed that, a little that, light on that for us? Angela, that's ridiculous. Every single person on our staff has their own draft board. That's how we write up reports. So everyone in their system, Nick has his own draft board, Andy Weidel has their own draft board, Tom Donahue has their own draft board, I have my own draft board. That's how we rank players. That's how our system is set up to do that. We have an Eagles draft board that reflects a lot of things. And my job is to bring them all together. My job is to get the coach's perspective, the scout's perspective, the medical perspective, the character perspective as we do this process. You know, my job is to try to reflect all of that. I listen to everyone to try to make these decisions. And at the same time, someone may be unhappy because it may not be reflected accurately in all the information that I have that they may not have. And so I think that's the job uh, of everyone in my position around the league. And that's what's happening around the league. You know, I speak to a lot of GMs. I've been doing this for a long time. This, this isn't unique to the Philadelphia Eagles. All right, Howie, was there unanimous agreement on Devontae Smith? Yes. I just wanted to be sure. Yes. There's always a naysayer. You know, Howie, once in a while, a guy wants to go into the grain. Everybody loved Devontae. Cross the board. Everyone loves Devontae Smith. Okay. I'm, I'm good with it. I just wanted to check. All right. Every, they, every, Angelo, yeah. our group couldn't be more excited about this draft. Couldn't be more excited about this draft. Couldn't be more excited about the direction. And not only that, like, now as we go forward – we have all these picks. You know, you forget about that sometimes. All these picks to make this team great again. And, th- and that's really exciting. Well, this leads to my big moment here with you, Howie. Because I don't like retooling or rebuilding. And I kind of like your team right now, especially that offense and those weapons. Mm-hmm. How are you looking? We're getting some messaging that the Eagles the next year or two is kind of a transition. From you- who? Uh, I kind of heard tra- the word transition from Jeff Lurie. Um, I guess you've said one of the reasons Doug left is because Doug wanted right now this next year to put go all in, and you guys were seeing it as more as a two- or three-year project. Uh, what's your ass- assessment right now of the team for the season coming up? Well, in 2016, people were telling us it was going to take five years, and we did it in 12 months. That's a challenge that we want to do better on. We want to do it quicker. We want to win as many games as possible. Now, everyone is sitting there thinking a certain thing about our football team. And you just said it, you know. Uh, we have a lot of good players. We have a lot of good players. We have a lot of good people. And we've got to keep building on top of that to climb that mountain again. And that's what we're going to do. 
we're going to try to win as many games as possible, and we're going to go into continue to build the roster. Like our fans deserve that, the people in our building deserve that, our players deserve that. You're not conceding the N- uh, NFC East this season, is that correct? I think I said to you last year before the season, we don't spend all year trying to make this team as good as possible to not try to compete. That's crazy. It's a great message. All right, I, last thing I want to talk to you about, you got some new people in the building. you got a brand-new coaching staff. What have they been <laughs> like, Howie, and what input had, did they give you in this draft? Have you seen Coach Sirianni yeah. and, and his press conference? Have you seen how much juice this guy has, how much passion this guy is? He wants to be on the field with our team. Our defensive coordinator, our, our other coaches, some of who you haven't met, these coaches are going to have our team ready to fight. I mean, you know, there, there are times I'm sitting at my house, it's like 10 o'clock. I've got to get Coach Sirianni's family up here because there are times I'm sitting at my house like 10 o'clock and, and, and my phone rings and, and he, he wants to talk about our football team, about the things that he has planned for our team. This guy has so much passion for the game, for, for our team for this city, and you see it uh, every day. It's kind of funny because everyone thinks like he drinks a lot of coffee. Um, he actually doesn't even drink caffeine. This is just him naturally. Wow. There's, there has been this kind of a subplot that he'll do whatever you and Jeff tell him. He won't push back. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, that's that's. I, this guy has been waiting for this opportunity the whole life, so you think he's just going to gonna do whatever. First of all, we want his perspective and his opinion. We respect him. That's why he's the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. At the end of the day, this is a guy that is ready for the opportunity. This is a team. You know, we want to reflect what he's looking for in his vision. We work together to do that. And I'm, I couldn't be more excited for our players to get on the field. I saw you laugh when the rock, scissors, uh, paper, scissors came <laughs> up in the news conference, Howie. Um, what were you thinking? You like it? You, you think it's uh... – it seemed kind of unusual, but I'm not saying it was I, I, I was laughing yeah. bec- bec- because I, I beat him, you know, and, and that makes me happy. So, like, you know, we, we were, like, trying to compete every every day um, on everything. And so, you know, there are some days I'm like, Coach, like, I'm, I'm good. I just got to work out and do, do we have to do that. But I was laughing because this is who he is, and he's showing you who he is. You know, he's not hiding behind anything. Uh, and this is a guy – who understands that a virtual world is tough to figure out. I mean, I see it w- with my kids. You know, it's hard for them to concentrate and focus, and he is so creative. This is, this is a situation where when we did this head coaching search, we had to ask them how they're going to approach a freaking virtual world, which is tough. And he had a plan for it. He had a plan to get these guys going. He had a plan to bring the edge, uh, the energy He's an education major, and you see it in his approach to our players and our staff to get them going. All right. I just want to be clear on this one thing. You did play rock, paper, scissors with Sirianni, and you beat him. Is that correct? I, I, I may retire from the game. <laughs> I told him. He, he's so pissed at me. I said to him, he said to me, are we playing again? And I said, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I dropped Howie. the mic. Drop the mic. Howie, great stuff. Howie, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Great Thanks job. Thanks for your time, guys. Right. We'll Howie, talk soon. That was Howie Rose. When we come back, we'll uh, talk about some of the things Howie had to say. Uh, that's coming up next. I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio 94 WIP. 
Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly with you on this Mother's Day morning. And um, next segment, I, I do want to let you hear a little bit. Landon Dickerson joined the morning show as well. Very interesting guy, Landon Dickerson. Um, and a fun interview. So we'll let you hear that uh, coming up. But um, I did want to talk a little bit about Howie here. And, you know, we talked about Howie a lot this week. I thought that was a very honest Howie Rosen, personally. You know, you can say maybe I'm getting swindled. Maybe I'm getting fooled. Um, but I thought that was as upfront and as honest as we have heard Howie Roseman in his career uh, with the Philadelphia Eagles. And I thought there were a lot of things um, in there that I found very interesting. And, you know, I thought he addressed the Tom Donahoe situation um, right out front, you know, as basically saying, hey, um, Tom wanted a different player, and he let you know exactly who the player was. Uh, it didn't work his way this time, and that's the way it goes. And I've, you know, we talked about this, but you know, I don't think it's a, a, a problem to have disagreements. And this is the thing with the Eagles, where where we look so much into everything. There is no problem with having disagreements. I think that is a a positive thing for people to have disagreements and be able to voice them and one of the big criticisms of Howie has been that he surrounds himself with yes men he surrounds himself with people who do not feel that they can adequately express their opinions I that does not seem true to me I mean I didn't see somebody in Tom Donahoe who was afraid to express any sort of opinion I mean I look at that as a positive. I look at that as something that dispels a lot of those notions. Um, Howie talking about wanting to get up, and and I think it's pretty clear that this team does really love Devontae Smith. You know, obviously, they're going to talk up their, their top draft choice, but Devontae Smith is a different kind of guy, and he's a special, special kind of player. And... I really do believe that they believe in this player so much because I don't think they would have wanted to necessarily, uh, you know, draft a, a receiver second year in a row. I mean, I know they wouldn't want to do that. I and mean, that, of course, that's not something that you're going to want to do is draft a receiver two years in a row. But I think they believe so much in this player and they believe so much in what he is and what he can be, um, that it was just too too good of an opportunity to pass up. And I agree with that. Like, I really do believe this guy is a, is a home run pick. He's going to make everybody better on that offense. He's going to make Rager better. He's going to make Goddard better. He's going to make Miles Sanders better. Most importantly, he's going to make Jalen Hurts better. And I just think, it, I'm happy that they didn't, not draft a receiver because they have in the past. Because that's something I feel like before this team might have done because they had concerns about perception. That, you know, we're admitting a failure if we draft a receiver two years in a row. Well, sometimes you got to swallow your pride and do that. And I don't necessarily think Jalen Rager's a bust yet. But if you have a chance to get Devontae Smith, you can't worry about your needs. you got to go get them. And I like the way the Eagles approach this draft as that being kind of their general philosophy, was we are not going to 
we are not going to specifically look like we need to address these certain needs. But we are going to go get the best players. And that's the way you should be operating when you're a team that is currently in the situation that the Eagles are in. And, I mean, you can hear, it's a pretty funny cut when uh, when (laughs) exasperatedly says, yes, everybody loves Devontae Smith. But uh, I don't know how you can't, you know, can I don't know how you cannot love this guy when you hear him speak. So talking about that, I thought was interesting. And, you know, I totally agree with how he's take on this division where, and I said it before, I just don't understand why the general assumption is that the Eagles will not compete this year. I don't see anybody in this division that is special. Um, I don't see anybody in this division that is going to run away with this thing. And I absolutely think the Eagles can compete in the NFC East. There's no doubt in my mind they can. Um, This is a team that's going to come back. They have the best offensive line in the division. There's no doubt about that. Even if they sustain a couple injuries, they got depth. I mean, you got Landon Dickerson. You got Driscoll, who played well last year. Um, You have uh, Dillard, who time time will tell, but still a first-round pedigree player um, who, because of injury, didn't play last year. Not because he couldn't play, because of uh, talent or anything like that. It was because of injury. Um, You know, you got a guy like Herbig who showed he could play adequately last year. And um, I think this team is in very good position when you look at the offensive line, when you look at the defensive line, some of the additions. I mean, I love the idea and the philosophy of drafting as many defensive linemen as they did, because if only a couple of these guys work out, you know, you're going to have guys to cycle through there. And when you look at the 2017 Eagles, the reason that team was so successful and the reason they were so dominant was because they dominated on the lines. And I'm not trying to take away anything from Carson Wentz or Nick Foles. They were both phenomenal that year when they had to be. But that team was phenomenal because the lines were phenomenal. And the offensive line gave the quarterback the time they needed and, you know, uh, allowed them to have an effective running game. The defensive line got after the quarterback and stopped the uh, stopped the run at a high level. That team didn't have great corners. I mean, the starting corners on that team were Jalen Mills and Ronald Darby. You know, other than Nigel Bradham, that team wasn't dominating anybody at linebacker. But they were dominant on both sides of the lines, and I like that approach as far as the Eagles trying to get back to that. Um, and, you know, I thought that was, was uh, you know, a very interesting interesting way of going about it. Um, and then the Landon Dickerson stuff. And we'll talk a little bit more about Landon Dickerson coming up next um, because he joined the morning show. I want to let you hear that as well. But And how he also talking about Zach Ertz and basically saying we're not in a rush to trade Zach Ertz, and the Eagles shouldn't be. If Zach Ertz is... You know, if Zach Ertz, you're not getting what you deem to be fair value, and what I would deem to be fair value for Zach Ertz, the only thing I would trade him for is a either a player that you want, which player-for-player player trades we know how rare they are in the NFL, or a third-round pick or better. If you're getting a fourth-round pick or below, I'm not trading him. And, you know, Zach Ertz might want to be traded. In the end, I think Zach Ertz will come back and be a professional because that's the kind of guy he is. And... um 
yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade Zach Ertz unless you get blown away with an offer and it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. But when we get back, we'll let you hear Landon Dickerson on with the morning show. That's coming up. I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio 94 WIP. All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, momentarily, we should be joined by the second-round draft pick of the Philadelphia Eagles, yes. Al. A guy you love. Am yes. I right? You love Landon Dickerson? I do, because not only his talent, his stuff he does on the field, he looks like he's he's a fun guy. Does it fit Philly at all, Al? He fits Philly. He's going to be a battler. Then we better bring him on right now. Ladies and gentlemen, second-round draft pick, and a guy you're going to love playing for the Eagles, Landon Dickerson. Hi, Landon. Hey, how's it going? Oh, you're, you are a perfectly made for Philadelphia. Are you excited you're playing in this city? Yes, sir, absolutely. I couldn't think of a better place to be. Right, what have you heard about us, Landon? I, You know, I've heard that the fans, you know, they're, they're one of a kind, die hard. They're going to die for their team. And, you know, that's what I'm looking for because I'm the same way with my city. So, yeah, I'm just really excited to be surrounded by a fan base that's all in, that loves football, sports in general, and just has a history of being awesome. All right, Atlanta, can you just tell us what it's like when you dreamed of being in the National Football League and they call your name? What was that moment like for you when you got drafted? It's really a surreal moment, and I think uh, for the first couple days I was still in shock. It really didn't hit me that it happened. It's, you know, it's something that, you know, a lot of a lot of us work our whole lives for. I mean, I've been playing football since I was four years old. So, you know, this is 18 years later that this comes to fruition, and you know, it's just it's just a great feeling. It's like it's almost like you've been like studying for a test for 18 years, and you know, you you're waiting around to see what you got on the test, and you end up like getting an A plus. You get a hundred on it. So, I mean, it's it, I, I I don't even have words to describe how excited. And, you know, relieved I am that just all of that happened. All right, you said you were playing when you were four. How old were you, Landon, when you said, well, you know what, I think I might be pretty good at this game? Um, You know, I, I've never really had that, you know, I might be pretty good at this. I started focusing more on just football in high school, uh, probably around my sophomore year, maybe, you know, 14, 15 years old. I was like, you know, I, I enjoy this sport the most, so – you know, this is where I'm going to put my time and energy. All right. So you go to Florida State, and you make the team as a starter, as a true freshman. Um, I, I, describe that. That doesn't happen at, at uh, Florida State, right, Landon? This is a very unusual situation. So I think really the biggest thing is, like, I've always had the mentality to go in and compete wherever I go. And, you know, it's it's really about – you know, I'm going to challenge myself to be the best player I can be. I'm going to challenge other guys to push themselves, and I want them to challenge me back. So as we got into it, you know, we go through camp. You know, we start sorting, you know, first team, second team, all that stuff. And then, you know, it was really just about trying to be the best player I could be and doing whatever I could to make the team better. So, you know, we first get there, and, you know, I, I'm put on a scout team, you know, fourth team, and as you know, a guy who's always been larger and fairly decent at football. You know, I, I've never been on scout team before, but it, it was always just about grinding, you know, giving 110% every day, trying to show the coaches what I can do and working my way up in the depth chart. Wow. All right. What made you transfer to Alabama? I just thought um, at that point in time, you know, 
I, I was looking for something a little different in coaching and Alabama fitted. I mean, with the amount of resources, you know, we have at Alabama, you know, coaching staff, you know, strength coaches, other staff up there. I mean, it just, it offered me a great opportunity to go not only develop myself personally on the field, but also, you know, learn and get knowledge from coaches, you know, they've been coaching 30, 40 years. You know, at times we have four or five head coaches in that building that, you know, they're, you know, analysts, assistant coaches that you can just pull a ton of knowledge from. And that's one thing that I really wanted to do was develop myself, you know, overall in every aspect of football that way. You know, here's another thing that blows my mind about you, Landon. You had two years of college eligibility left but also already had your degree. That's unbelievable. Did you take post-grad? What did you do at Alabama because you had already graduated? Yes, sir. So I actually spent those two years at Alabama getting my master's in business administration. That's all. (laughs) Wow. You're unbelievable. All right, so, and even your girlfriend came with you. Is that right, Landon? She went from Florida State to Alabama as well? Yes, sir, she did. And she actually got her master's in business administration as well. Wow, wow. this is unbelievable. All right, so now you're there, and, and you're there as a guard, and then suddenly they need you to play center. You've never done it, and you start right in with no experience at center. Tell me what that was like. Again, it goes back to just wanting to compete. Um, you know, right then, uh, I think we had an injury kind of, that led to my transition to center and it just, you know, happened to be coach wants to get the best five guys on the field, regardless of, you know, what position you play. So it just so happened that, you know, I was going to go to center and have to make that adjustment. And, you know, I, I'm not a guy that wants to go in and make excuses and say, you know, well, I didn't do good in this game because, you know, y'all, y'all moved me to center. No, for me, it was all right. You know, we compete at a high level regardless of what happens. So I have to go in here, and there's a standard I have to meet, and I'm going to exceed it. Wow. And here's the thing through this whole story that blows my mind, Landon. You are clearly an incredible competitor, and you keep getting denied the opportunity to compete because you get hurt for different injuries. Can you describe how frustrating that's been for you? It's not necessarily frustrating. I'm actually – you know, injuries give you a chance, and they're a learning experience, really, in my opinion. So, you know, I, I don't ever sit back and think about, you know, oh, I could have done this different or I could have done I mean, you know, they're in the past, and you can't change that. So, you know, my mindset is, you know, let's learn from it and move on, you know, see what we can do different next time. So, you know, for me, it's always, you know, I it kind of sounds bad, but I've been thankful for them because, you know, these injuries have taught me a lot about who I am as a player, you know, mentally and physically, what I need to do to take care of my body and go about it so that I, you know, I can take care of myself and, you know, act like a professional when it comes to football. I got to tell you the truth, Landon. Your story, like, should be a movie because then (laughs) you're in Alabama and they love you so much there. You're injured. You get hurt in the playoffs. When you're winning the championship, they bring you out for the final snap. Could you tell us what that felt like when they thought enough of you to incorporate you into the championship game, even though you were hurt? I mean, honestly, I've been asked this question a couple times, and you know, I think the best, like you kind of said, a movie. I think the best uh, 
the best thing to relate it to is it was almost like a Disney movie moment. You know, everything <laughs> just kind of, everything's happy at the end. Everybody got what they want. I mean, just a surreal moment that you couldn't believe happened. So, I mean, that's, I really still don't have words to describe it. I mean, I, I'm just so appreciative of, you know, the fact that coach and the players, you know, they, they let me go in and take those final couple snaps and, you know, be a part of it one last time. And it was just, I mean, I, I couldn't I couldn't be more thankful for all those guys and everybody in that building. Says a lot about you too, Landon. Hey, Landon, I would be remiss if I did not get a scouting report from you on the number one pick the Eagles made. Devontae Smith, what can you tell us about him? I can tell you anything bad that you may have heard. Yep. You know, I think the biggest knock on Smitty is his weight from other people. You can throw that out the window. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're football players, and it's about getting a job done. And I don't think anybody in college football got the job done better than Smitty. I mean, I, I don't care, you know, what safety, what corners on him. Who's trying to reroute? Smitty's going to get open. He's going to catch the ball, and he's going to find the end zone. It doesn't matter. So he he's going to compete every day. I'm not worried about him. I'm I can't tell you how excited I am to have him up here with me, and for us, just you know, we get to stay together. We get to compete even more, and you know, I I know he's going to thrive this year and in his career in the league. All right, I dream here in in Phil. You know, we love football. We love the Eagles, Landon. Our dream is both you guys are going to be there together, leading them to another championship. How confident are you you're going to be able to stay healthy in the NFL? Yeah, I feel good about how I take care of myself moving forward. I, you know, I know what I need to do, you know, lifting wise, diet wise, rehab wise, to to keep my body feeling good throughout the season. So, you know, football is. You know, it's it's a weird sport. Things happen that you can't control. But from my end, I feel like I'm taking all the necessary steps to take care of my body. All right. I have one last thing, and it's because I forgot to ask Devontae this, and I'm still kicking myself. Did you also face Nick Sirianni in a game of rock, paper, scissors? <laughs> yes, sir, I did. And how, who won that? I won that. All right, I'm going to tell you the truth. I, I'm, I'm not positive, Linda. I think he's he's throwing these games. I think he's tanking. Hey, you guys, he he lost to all the top draft picks. Now, I, I will say this. Yeah. Now, with if you want to look at it mathematically, you have just as good odds of winning as you do losing if you try to win or if you try to lose in rock, paper, scissors. Oh, so, so if you just from a, a mathematics side, if you try to lose, you have just as good as the chance to win as you do if you're trying to win. So wow, oh. this kid is too smart for me, Landon. You know who else you're going to love here, Jason Kelsey. I know you're going to work with him. You guys are perfect for each other. You're going to love it here in Philadelphia. I can't thank you enough for doing this today. Yes, sir. No, I appreciate you guys having me on. I'm really excited to get up there, get situated, and. Get back to playing football. Landon, thank you, and best of luck. Thanks thanks very much. Yes, sir. Thank you, guys. Take care. That was Landon Dickerson on with Angelo Cataldi and the morning team, and obviously a very fun guy, like a personality that I think we're really going to like in this town, and, you know, you just hope he can stay healthy um, because the talent's there. Like, you hear offensive line people, Ross Tucker, um, Brian Baldinger, they rave about about. 
Landon Dickers. Or, yeah, Landon Dickers. Uh, for some reason, I, I got caught up there. Um, but, uh, you know, this guy is a real um, special player when he's out on the field. Uh, he's a dominant player when he's out on the field. And I'm excited about this pick. Like, I, I generally tend to err on the side of risk rather than, um, you know, not risking when you come to these level picks. First round pick, you need to get a guy that can play. Um, and I wouldn't say that means, you know, you don't take any sort of risks, but you also need to make sure you're getting um, a player who can be productive for you. Uh, but in the second round, I would rather take the risk. And, you know, it turned out not to work out. I was okay with the uh, Sidney Jones pick a few years ago. And I'm more okay with this one. I think this pick's less risky because of the position. Um, offensive linemen just have a better chance to recover from a serious injury than a corner does coming back from an Achilles injury. It's it's just it's just clear when you look at the positions and what you need to do. But uh, Landon Dickerson, to me, one of the most interesting things about this move and about what he represents is this Eagles' new philosophy on culture guys. Is They have clearly made a concerted effort this year to get culture players back in that locker room. And Landon Dickerson was a leader at Alabama. You see that final play that he talked about where he gets to go on the field. These teammates wanted him to go on the field for a snap at the end of that national championship game, even though he couldn't play. That tells you a lot about the respect that he has within that program. And that program especially, where it is cutthroat. Like, uh, Alabama, they're not doing charity for people at Alabama. They're about winning football games and nothing else. And for Nick Saban to allow something like that, which Nick Saban's kind of like a non, no-nonsense type guy, for his teammates to want that moment so badly for him, that tells me something. And I think the Eagles do look at it as far as that position on the offensive line, losing a guy like Jason Kelsey, that they want to restore that leadership whenever Jason does move on, which could be this year. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully Jason Kelsey stays around. He's still playing at a high level. And, I mean, Landon Dickerson can be used all over the offensive line. So I don't think there's any need to rush Jason Kelsey out the door here, but um, this focus on culture I found to be interesting that I think the Eagles clearly feel like there were some issues within that locker room that need to be fixed. And with Devontae Smith, Landon Dickerson, uh, some of the guys that they picked, that's obviously an area that they felt was important to address. But um, that was the Landon Dickerson interview in the 5 o'clock hour. We hear some very interesting stuff from Pat Croce, who joined Glenn and Ray. Uh, so we'll hear, let you hear a little bit of that. We'll talk about it. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Welcome back. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack. Now, well, the most interesting man in the world grew up in Delaware County, He became a physical therapist, a strength coach to the stars. He built an empire of exercise facilities, parlayed parlayed that into becoming part owner and president of the 76ers, making that franchise successful and fun again. He's an author, a life coach, an explorer, a Zen master, a pirate, a TV host, a survivor, one of the best, most interesting people we know. Our guest for Tell Us Your Story, Pat Croce. Pat, what an honor. Glenn Ray, thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, and we know, Pat, uh, after being low profile for a while, you have a new terrific campaign called Healed Health and Energy Through Active Living Every Day with the American Cancer Society. We're going to get to that in a little bit, but we want to we want to cover your life story. It's tough to do your life story in 45 minutes, so let's all agree to talk fast. 
You grew up in Lansdowne. I read that you plan to go to Drexel to become an accountant. I do not see that at all. How did that change, Pat? Well, my neighbor, Ernie Colias, was going to Drexel in that five-year program, and I always liked numbers. I always liked numbers, and I thought, I'd just follow his lead. But a good friend of mine, Joe Masters, had talked me in. He was going to Westchester. He was going to play football, and he was a good football player. And I thought, I went out there with him for his orientation to meet the coaches. I went, wow, this is pretty cool. And so I thought, well, I played football, and so I'd try out for the team as well. And I was there for a health and phys ed, although I didn't want to be a health and phys ed teacher, but I always liked the physicality of the human body. And so that's what started me. So I went there for two years prior to transferring to University of Pittsburgh that had a degree in physical therapy. There was only there, Temple, and Penn. I couldn't get into Temple. Penn, I couldn't afford. I went to Pitt, and uh, so not only did I have a physical therapy degree, but I also, I didn't play football at at, I did at Westchester, but not at Pitt. Obviously, their their team was so good. That was the year in 76, 77 when I graduated that they had the national champions with Tony Dorsett, yeah, Dorsett to- at the time. Yeah, Tony to- Dorsett now. Yeah, Tony Dorsett and uh, and Matt Cavanaugh and Bill Fralick. That, oh. that was a good team. That was I a good think, team. I think, Ray, I think they put 10 guys in 77 or 76 into the pros after that year, Johnny Major's year when he first coached them. So when you get out of Pitt and you've got your degree uh, in, um, in health and f- physical therapy and conditioning, what's your next stop, Pat? How, how do you get to, what's your next stop, and how do, you get to the, how do you get to the Flyers? Well, first it was a rejection, Ray. That's a really good question. I went, and my goal, if I couldn't play football, if I couldn't be a professional football player, I always wanted to play for the Eagles. I had big dreams. Even though my body couldn't catch up with my mind, I really wanted to play for the Eagles. So that's why I've tried. I played football at Westchester, as I said, just a freshman year, but I wasn't big enough nor strong enough or fast enough. And then I thought, well, why not train them, condition them? And so the physical therapy, in addition to a certification athletic training, I melded the two worlds. At the time, it was like sheep farmers and cattle herders. They hated each other. (laughs) So I, I got both degrees. And then I knocked on the door. I knocked on the door in the spring. The camp was at Widener University. And I knocked on that door wearing my white lab jacket, wearing a tie, and I thought I looked like a hundred bucks. I was taking a physical therapy job at a small community hospital, but that wasn't my goal. I wanted to work with the pros. And so I knocked on this door, and the trainer answered, big trainer with a southern draw, can I help you, son? And I said, yes, I want to apply for the physical therapy job. He said, we don't need any. Bang. I mean, he truly slammed the door on me. Now, you guys know I had a little wild hair up my, I was Delaware County boy, and I knocked again. Had that young mullet. (laughs) He opens the door, and he sees it's still me, and before he could slam, close it, I held my hand out. I said, wait a second, wait a second. Do you have a physical therapist on staff? He says, no, no. I said, that's what I want to apply for. I said, I'll volunteer. You don't even have to pay me. We don't need any. Bang. And that was the even to this day, Dick Vermeil says that he started my career when his trainer slammed the door on me. So it's pretty funny that he did. If I was to get that job, who would have known? But instead, and I wasn't prepared for that job. So I went and took more physical therapy, more sports medicine courses because sports medicine at the time was a brand new word. And so then I, uh, Matt DiPolo was the physical therapist for the Flyers at the time. And I had done volunteer work when I was at 
Westchester at Fitzgerald Mercy Hospital in Darby, Pennsylvania, and Matt was the physical therapist. So he gets the job, and he asked me, because I was a little more adept at spinal mobilization, I had taken all these extra courses in college on the back and the spine, and he wanted to know some of them, and he knew of my karate prowess, and if I would train some of the players, Paul Holmgren, Mel Bridgman, Don Selesky, in flexibility, a little more fighting with with Homer than the others, but nevertheless. <laughs> and so then I got on as as a conditioning, as a physical therapist, conditioning coach, consultant, like just a consultant for that 79, I think it was. And in 80, Maddie had left, and Pat, Pat Quinn was the head coach and asked me to come on and uh, do what I was doing with Homer and Don Selesky and Mel with some of the other players. And Clarkie jumped right into it because Clarkie was always in shape. Clarky was fitness, off-ice fitness before anyone. I think the Russians. He followed the Russian lead from that 76 game. Mm-hmm. So that was it. That was the beginning of my career in the pros. Well, you really built it up because by, I don't know, I guess the mid-80s, late-80s, it's really a who's who in this town of, of your training, Bob Clark and Mike Schmidt and Doc and Barkley. Uh, I mean, I think uh, Barkley basically shrunk down, lost the – round mound of rebound nickname because of the work you did with him. I remember the T-shirts that used to say, I survived Pat Croce. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to ask you, who was your two or three best students? And then I may ask you the flip side of that. I should say that it came in the order of Mike Schmidt came to me after, as I was working with the Flyers, seeing the work that I was doing with Whitey, Bobby Clark. And then following that, Harold Katz came because of Charles and Doc needed to prolong his career. And there was Andrew Tony with his, his heel problems. So, but to answer your question, but the notoriety came from Mike Schmidt. When Mike Schmidt started to do something out of the diamond in dry land, doing some of the stuff that we were doing, core training and plyometric training, that was unheard of in Major League Baseball. And at the time, I mean, some of the writers and people were killing me. Until in 86, he wins the MVP for the entire Major League Baseball <laughs> National League. And he thanks God, his wife, and me in that order. And so then it changed. Then it changed. But nevertheless, to answer your question, I have to go with my top two. Top three would be Mike Schmidt, Davey Poulin, and mm-hmm. Bob Clark. Yeah, great. And the toughest – I mean, I remember you once talking about Sean Bradley, and we all wish Sean Bradley the best, <laughs> and, and saying that he was trying to get him to build up was a real challenge. Glenn, that's an understatement. I even had my <laughs> wife take his wife to the supermarket to show her how to choose foods for him. because So I'm training this guy who's a drip, drip of water, seven foot six, and he doesn't like to work out hard. I'm used to athletes who train hard. And him, he'd throw up within the first 10 minutes. I don't want him losing <laughs> weight by throwing up. I want him gaining weight. So it's snowing out, and he's not coming to the sports medicine center. He's not coming. So I bring some equipment, and I go to his house. So what are you doing? Oh, and I go in the house, and on the kitchen table, Ray and Glenn, no exaggeration, there are all these wrappers and leftovers from mcdonald's i said what the are you doing he goes Dad, i got free coupons <laughs> I was like, no, no, this is not gonna work 
<laughs> he was really tough. I think even to this day he says that that was awful. And then the other one, like Charles Barkley, you're right, right? He was the round man to rebound, and then he did start. It took a while for him to follow Doc's lead, but I had to massage his knees and give him bicycling, things that he was adept to prior to doing any strength training. I should say that I didn't have the impact on Charles that being traded to Phoenix did because that year he won the MVP. He was felt, and he even thanked me after the fact. He was really, he really got the bite. He really followed the Michael Jordan program. And in addition to basketball, he did the gym. That was, he had his own breakfast club. <laughs> well, I, remember... I don't know what he, I don't know what he's eating for breakfast now. <laughs> well, I remember when, oh, you were the physical therapist for the Flyers back in, in those days in the eighties. And I remember, um, you took it real serious. I mean, every phase of what these guys did in terms of their workouts, what they put in their bodies. I mean, you were you were total total oversight on all that stuff. And I remember uh, when they were going to the first set of finals with with Edmonton and flying the team charter to Edmonton, I remember when the stewardesses came out with the trays to start feeding the guys their meal on the plane. You were standing in the aisle looking at every tray and saying, uh, no, 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 not that, no, no burgers, no, no burgers. What, that brownies? Your brownies? No, no brownies. And those of us, the media guys, we're in the back of the plane saying, hey, send it back here. You know, burgers, brownies, you're talking our language here. And the hockey players know that they, they can't eat that. But, I mean, you were, I mean, every tray that went by, you were looking at it and either saying, okay, or no, take that off. <laughs> Ray, they respected what I said for two reasons. One, all fights, I would train with them, even if it was three days. And I could fight with them. You know, they knew, you know, what, uh, Homer and I had a little fisticuff and I busted his nose. That's all I needed to do. And the rest of them followed suit after that. But, wow. but I got to tell you, those four years, two of which we went to the finals in Edmonton, were the Mike Keenan years. And it was so pleasurable working for someone like him who was a scientist of the body. He had the Fat Boys Club. Do you remember that? The Fat Boys Club. I remember. And I would take, I would weigh them in and take, and we did the weigh-ins probably before and after most every practice so that if they lost too much weight, obviously that's hydration. That requires water replacement. And if you don't have the water, you're going to lose endurance no matter what you do in your conditioning. But we'd also do, i do their percent of body fat. And anyone who was under at the time, I think it was 13%. They had to be in the Fat Boys Club. And so they had to bike before practice with me doing sprints, 30 seconds on, 60 seconds off, 20 seconds on, 40 seconds off, similar to shift work. Well, Mirjav Dvorak, Dvorak, remember him? Yeah, sure. The Czechoslovakian. He'd say, I bike in Czechoslovakia, I bike to play hockey. In America, I play hockey to bike. <laughs> he did so much bicycling. <laughs> but Michael, Michael Keenan was a great one to work for. I mean, he was so into with E.J. McGuire as his assistant and Ted Sater. They were really into the science, the real sports medicine of athletics, pro athletics. Pat Croce is our guest on Tell Us Your Story. Um, you had so much going on. I just I want to make one quick stop because when I started at WIP all those years ago, you had a show. Um, it was either 10 to 11 or 11 to noon and, uh, it was a great show, but you got in trouble as I remember, I don't want to name the specific sponsor, but can you tell the audience what you suggested? <laughs> so I would not read the commercial because I didn't 
adhere to the commercials. Mine was truly a weekly hour show. You're right, Glenn. That's yeah. all it was. Yeah. And, uh, and and so it was called Back Roach on Sports Medicine. It had to do with fitness, nutrition, exercise, rehabilitation, and all call. And it was a fun. It was fun. It was great. Oh, every caller had to call in and say, I feel great. <laughs> yeah. You I wouldn't would let say, them on. How you, how you doing? Oh, I'm okay. Nope. They've gone. Right. <laughs> and I'd work their way up to they feel great. What's wrong? Well, I blew out my leg after they're feeling great. So there's this one commercial on. Now, I'm not reading it, but the commercial's on, and it's Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I told the sales team and the manager, don't put that crap on my show. So <laughs> they, they, they play. The, they play. I forewarned them. So when it goes off, I'd say, yes. And if you go buy that fried chicken, here's what I want you to do. Here's how you're going to eat it. You take off all the chicken, all the skin off that chicken, and you put your chicken leg down on the plate, and you take that skin, and you throw it right up against the window and watch it just slide right. down. And that's the fat that's yeah. going in your body. That was it. Our program director did not appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Pat, when you look at the guys that you worked with uh, and you went across all sports, you went across all platforms, you had tall guys, you had basketball players who were seven feet tall, you had little guys. You, uh, I, would, I would assume you're not going to train, or maybe you are, a baseball player the same as a hockey player or a basketball player the same as a hockey player or a baseball player. I mean, you're, you're going across all, all the different levels of sports. Do you t- did you tailor the workouts to the guy's sport, or was it just a matter of you're just going to break their body down and just sort of start building them back up from the ground? No, no, it was most definitely sport-specific, and that was the beauty of it. No, the, the basketball didn't do exactly what hockey did. When we did anaerobic training for the hockey players and we used the bike a lot, you didn't need the treadmill because they weren't running. They were using their thighs and glutes, not as much their hamstrings. And it was kind of like a, I, used, I made up these sleds. Reebok, Reebok ripped me off. I had this fake ice that you would slide right oh, yeah. to left and almost simulating the skating. Eventually, they come out with slide boards and dogs. But that was it. <laughs> that was so, so it would be very specific, even the lifting. What does uh, Dr. J need with, with thick muscles? He just needs endurance so that he can rebound and he can re- prevent injury. Now, he was, it wasn't the same kind of body that a Brad McCrimmon or a Brad Marsh would use or Mark Howe. And everything was – and it was even different within the sport and within the position of the sport because these players, many of them, many of them had injuries because those sports are tough. They're tough on the body, and so you have to make sure that you don't lose the balance – Agonist, antagonist, front to back, outside, inside. But what happens is if an athlete doesn't get proper training, they usually train what they see in the mirror. I call them mirror muscles. You know, their biceps, their abs, their quads, but they forget their triceps, their back, and their hamstrings. So it's really important that you don't mess with the balance God first gave you. Pat Croce is our guest, and I, I want to jump ahead. Um, you uh, became an entrepreneur, and you built up a chain of 40-plus uh, fitness rehab centers, quite a feat for a kid from Lansdowne. And that allowed you the opportunity to make it into something even bigger, which is what I know our audience is probably most interested in. How did you get the idea to buy the Sixers or to be part of an ownership group of the Sixers when Harold Katz uh, decided to sell? Well, here's another, Glenn, rejection. And, you know, this is where you take rejection and you twist it around. And with persistence, diligence, vigilance, a positive attitude, a high vibrational frequency, 
no is not necessarily a no. It just means no, not yet. And that was always my no, not yet, whether it was the trainer for the Eagles at the time slamming the door or Harold Katz. So it's 95. I sell my company, sports physical therapist, to NovaCare, what becomes NovaCare. The 40 centers, they had 180 at the time. But mine were the engine. Mine had the yep. systems and the, and the whole flavor and attention to detail and just the look and still Ray Panaccia and Dan Bradley. And there's, there's still guys where mine are running NovaCare. Yep. Well, so I fulfilled a two year employment contract. I sold in 93, two years in corporate. That's enough for me. I'm out of here. So then, you know, I'm here. I'm however old I am and I was born in 54. So I'm still young. I'm 40 years old. And it's, uh, I go to people who I thought could give me some insight. Ed Snyder, Chuck Barris, uh, Ron Rubin, uh, Harold Katz. And I'm talking to them, just asking their thoughts and entrepreneur, just quizzing. I'm very curious to see what they would recommend or how they went about doing their various uh, entrepreneurial endeavors. And so I'm at lunch with Harold Katz. And he knows me because I was the conditioning coach for his team for 10 years. And so, and I had a great relationship with Harold. And so I And he's upset, and the team is awful. And the people are walking past him in the restaurant, giving him, you know, the maloiks. And it was just, (laughs) I I felt bad for him. (laughs) So uh, I said to him, I don't even know why I did this, Ray Glenn. I have no idea. But it came up, I said, Harold, sell me 10% of the team. Let me own the team with you and infuse esprit, leadership, marketing, I'll get out into the, I'll ring the bell. I'll get out there and make sure I'm from Philadelphia. I'll make sure the Philadelphia sports fans know that you, you really care. And he says, no, Pat, when I sell, it will be all or nothing. Mm-hmm. He didn't say no guys. He qualified that. No. Two days later, I call him on the telephone, Harold, Harold, Pat. I said, Harold, you said, no, you wouldn't sell the team. At that time, you would have to sell it all. I said, I want to buy it all. He laughed at me. I said, no, no, no. I want to buy it all. I want to buy the whole team. In the interim, I had gone to, within 48 hours, I went to Ron Rubin, who I love. Uh, he's like my Jewish godfather. Mm-hmm. And I said, Ronnie, right, listen, we can do this. We, before I talked to him about going to uh, Harold, uh, Brayman, Norman Brayman, to try to get the Eagles, but they had grown up together. He said, he'll never sell. Yeah, he should be kicking himself. But nevertheless, this time he said, <laughs> okay, okay. I said, come on. But he said, okay. I said, I think I think he might sell. So I call Harold two days later, and I said, Harold, I want to buy the whole team from you. He said, Pat, I'm not ready to sell. When I run a sell, it's going to cost like $125 million. And that's exactly what the Toronto franchise, a brand-new franchise, I think it was Toronto and Vancouver at the time, had just come out and sold, and sold for it. So I'm, I'm covering the mic on the phone, the hand phone against the wall, and I'm just dancing. I'm dancing in the kitchen. He did not say no again. He qualified, and he said the first number. That's the number one rule of negotiation, to never say the first number. Hmm. And he said the first number. I went, holy sh-. And I'm, I hang up. I call Ronnie Rubin. I said, Ronnie, he said $125 million. We can do that. I can get up some of it, but where can we go? And he goes, let me think about it. And he comes back. He says, Pat, I know Ralph and Brian Roberts. And what the Knicks and the Rangers are doing with Cablevision up there, we can sell them something similar. It's, it's television rights. That's what it's about. I said, 
good. You do what you can do, but let's let me know. So he tells, and so I get back with uh, two more days. I get back with Harold. I said, Harold, I got the money. No. I said, yeah, no, I got the money. No, nah, you know, no. Nah. So I said, okay, well, let's just, let's just keep talking. Well, and the team's awful. Again, the team's losing. It's awful. It's working in my favor. I, this is the one time a Philly sports <laughs> fan wants a team to lose every freaking game. Sure, sure. I'm, I'm cheering every time. They only won that year 18 games, so it's pretty easy. They were losing everyone. So one time I go to Florida, and I knock on his mansion door, and I knock, and I said, oh, that I call first when I'm down there. And I said, I'm in the neighborhood, and do some business. I didn't want to tell him. The only business I was aware of was to see him. I had nothing to do. I was doing nothing. And I went in and his dog bit me. And so I played it to the hill. I played it to the hill. Oh, yeah. Come on. And we go sit by the pool. We have a drink. And, and it was just it was just great. Slowly but surely, he came around. And, uh, you know, he finally said yes. And we kept it quiet. That was started in September of 95. And no one knew till April of 96. Wow. Like yeah. a week or two before the, the press conference. No one. Not even you guys. No. Which no. is amazing. That was Well, that was part one of Glenn and Ray's interview with Pat Croce, uh, former Sixers team president, who obviously is a very uh, memorable guy here in this town. And, you know, uh, I've learned a lot of things from that first segment that I didn't know. Like, when I was growing up, all I knew Pat Croce as was the guy who – ran the Sixers when Allen Iverson was here. Like, crazy, promotional guy. Uh, you know, I thought he was the full owner of the team because back then I, I didn't know, you know, the in-depth uh, things that go into owning a team, uh, how many people are involved. And Pat Croce's the guy I always saw, so I just assumed, okay, this guy owns the Sixers. He's pretty cool. Um, kind of a cool owner. But uh, so interesting there is, you know, a, a guy who was in a spot that I'm sure a lot of people can relate to coming out of college or going into college really don't know what you want to do with your life kind of went to Westchester because his friend went to Westchester and um, you know, things go from there. And uh, I just think he is such an interesting character as far as his exuberance goes um, to have that much energy. Uh, and he really was part of what, what motivated this city to get behind the Sixers because I've seen a lot of questioning of late of like, why is the enthusiasm for this Sixers team? Not what it was back in 2001. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I think just the fact of what the NBA regular season is now compared to back then, um, where let's face it, the regular season doesn't mean a whole, a whole ton. Now. I mean, you get in the playoffs, obviously getting the one seed for the Sixers is important, but Unless you win in the playoffs, it doesn't really uh, mean a whole lot. Um, I think having a player like Allen, obviously, too, plays into it where, you know, Joel Embiid's great. I mean, he is entertaining. Allen was on a completely different level. And it's hard for anybody, you know, younger than I am who doesn't really remember it that well to understand. But... Like, when I was growing up, every kid had the Iverson sneakers. Every kid wanted to be Allen Iverson. Like, he was, because in a lot of, in 
in Allen Iverson, a lot of kids saw themselves. You know, like me, I was a smaller kid. Um, Allen Iverson, obviously, smaller guy playing against a bu- all these giants. And for one year, at least, pretty much dominated the league. And he was a big reason for it. But, but Pat Croce was a big reason for it as well. And I just can't help but wonder, what, where would the Sixers be if Pat Croce kept an active role in this team? You know, if he did not sell his shares, did not move on to pursue other things. And obviously, he felt like that's something he needed to do to fulfill himself in his life. But I think he was a really important part of this organization. And you see in a lot of ways, when Pat Croce left, this organization kind of kind of died a little bit for a while. And we can have our, our, our debates about Sam Hinkie forever, but let's face it, from the time Pat Croce left until... The day Sam Hinkie took over, essentially, this franchise was was a complete afterthought in this town. Like, this, what the Sixers were, from like 0405 to 2012, they did make that run in 2012 because Derrick Rose got hurt in the first round, but that wasn't a real run that anybody thought they were going to do anything significant. And it kind of reminds me of the Flyers now where the Flyers are kind of irrelevant and kind of a dead organization. I think part of it has to do with the sport and the fact that hockey's just not that popular of a sport in this country um, anymore. But Pat Croce was a, a huge deal. He was a huge part of what made this team, uh, you know, what, what rallied the community around this team. And he's a great promoter and did a great job. In a lot of regards. So when we get back, we'll let you hear part two of the Pat Croce interview, and then we'll react a little bit to, uh, to it as well and kind of reminisce uh, about those 2001 76ers and the Larry Brown Allen Iverson dynamic. That's coming up next. I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio 94 WIP. What does men. Can they get it in five seconds and round up the steal? Here come the Sixers. They are down two. Iverson. Well, welcome back along with Radio Enjoy. I'm Glenn Mack. Now, what a treat today, our guest, Pat Croce, for Tell Us Your Story. Pat's about to buy the Sixers, right? <laughs> well, I remember, uh, well, Pat, as you said right before the break, you guys did a great job of keeping this under wraps. I mean, this is a tough media town. It's tough to fool the press in this town, but you managed to do it. Uh, nobody knew this was in the offing. All of a sudden, drops the bombshell. You guys have bought the team. And I remember the quote that you had when I, at your first press conference, when you said, this isn't about basketball, it's about changing the city from can't do to can do. Uh, that's, uh, that, that's really kind of what you wanted to achieve. And I remember it started really with the very first game. I mean, the, they opened the doors and you're standing at the door greeting the fans as they came in. I mean, it was, it was obvious that you just wanted to give that whole franchise and the city really kind of an energy infusion. Thank you, Ray. And I did that. The entire five years, because I wanted to treat it like double-A ball. You know how the minor leagues, you just feel like you're part of the family, it's your home? And that's what I wanted to do. And you could have these giant ideas. Yes, I want a championship team. I want a parade down Broad Street, starting up in North Philadelphia, where I was born, all the way through, all the way down to the arena. But I really wanted the city involved, so much so that every player – I had asked them to pick a charity and to get involved because I thought the more we give, the more we would get. When you give of yourself, you just receive such great grace. And that comes in sports and wins. 
Now, the first year was only 22 wins, but that was 20% more than the previous year. But then I had to make changes. I had to, I had to, I well, the coach and the general manager. I, I, I want to bring that up because I remember this part because I was there that night and you held a gripe night with the fans. Which Uh-oh. that that well that franchise those fans had a lot of gripes and you invited people season ticket holders to come in and sit down and I and I I kind of snuck in as a media guy but I think you were nice enough you saw me and let me stay there and Johnny Davis was the coach Brad Greenberg was the GM and they didn't want to hear it. They did not want the fans to tell them how to run their team. But you listened, and sports owners don't usually listen to fans. Glenn, that, I was sweating. There were so many fans in that stands. The entire two middle sections of the arena were packed. I didn't know we had that many season ticket holders. <laughs> they were invited an hour before to ball, and we had supplied drinks and, and apps for them. But it was not just a uh, you know get to know session this truly was a great session and every they weren't even waiting for the microphone and they were yeah. screaming and yelling the yeah. coach can't coach general manager can't play i mean they were had me tied at the stake and they were throwing on gasoline but you know what this passion that we call the philadelphia sports fan was demonstrated beautifully in that they cared. they didn't have to come nor did they have to voice so why not listen and that night was the turning point, I truly believe, looking back, of the franchise as it states today. As it sits today is that because we did listen. And at the end of that year, the coach and the general manager, and even at the time, Ed Snyder said, Pat, you don't want to fire both of them. You know, just let the coach go, let the GM fire. No, I said, nope, I hired them both. I made a mistake. You know, rookie owner, rookie president, hiring a rookie GM, hiring a rookie coach, nope. Um, mea culpa, and I'm sorry, and I apologize to everyone, and I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a change, and it's going to, by golly, it's going to work. And so, no, I, you know, at the end of that year, the scary part, Ray and Glenn, is I don't know much about basketball. I know bodies and minds, but I don't know much about basketball. I didn't have a GM. I didn't have a coach. And here's me that you guys are talking to, and I don't know Squadola, but I know I'm going after – Phil Jackson, and it was Rick Pitino and Larry Brown. I was going after the top. If, if Pat Riley was available, I would have grabbed him too. <laughs> well, everything really changes with the franchise when, when you get the number one pick uh, and you bring in Allen Iverson, uh, who's not only is he a unique athlete, which you can appreciate more than anything, uh, but a unique personality. Uh, and the marriage of Allen Iverson and that passionate fan base you were talking about was really was the marriage made in heaven. He is special, Ray. He truly, Allen Iverson is special. God put him on earth to play sports. And he's such a good guy when you sit down and get to know him. Forget about the facade on the outside with his crew and his tattoos and the dreadlocks. He's just, he's just a kid at heart and he wants to play basketball. And I loved him. Yes, did he? I was a redhead and turned me gray hair. I mean, I, I never had <laughs> two children. Cops never called my house. I had the FBI call my house. Like, what is this? Like, oh, my goodness. But you know what? He was 19 when he comes out of Georgetown, and now he's in the pros. And, and then at the time, you know, there was Derek Coleman on the team. There was bad influence for, for practice, for work ethic. I mean, we didn't have Michael Jordan or uh, – LeBron James, like we didn't have that kind of leadership that Allen could look up to. 
he became the defunct leader because he was a star at 19, scoring 40 points five games in a row. And that's not good. That's not healthy because that didn't provide team basketball that first year, which caused Ajita to Larry the second year. So, uh, yes, so Larry Brown comes in, and you've got Larry Brown and Allen Iverson, and a renaissance is going to begin, and we're going we're gonna to talk about some of the great moments, but you also had these two personalities that they thrived together, but they didn't always uh, see eye to eye, and I remember there was a particular incident, it was against Detroit maybe, a game against Detroit, where you kind of had to intervene and tell both of them what's what. You know, the scary part talking to you two is that you have great memories. I should tell you the past is an illusion, so none of this really matters. <laughs> none of it happened. <laughs> we'll, we'll save that for the end of this interview. <laughs> but, <laughs> you're right. This was probably, if I was sweating in front of the te- season ticket holder meeting, this was a sweat. I get a phone call that night after the game, and Larry Brown tells me he's trading Iverson in the morning. I get a phone call from Bubba. Alan Iverson telling me, fire the coach or I quit. I'm not playing. <laughs> From both that night, I said, well, and to both of them, I said, let's meet in the morning. Let's meet. And this was that PCOM at the practice facility in the conference room. They come in. Everyone is out. You could see them through the glass. They're not practicing. Billy King's at the end of the table inside this conference room. I'm sitting there. Larry Brown's on the other side. Alan finally comes in and sits next to me and leans back with his arms across his chest and the perfect body language that says, leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And so I started up. I said, first, we all have a common goal to win a championship for this town. I said, Larry, you are not trading Alan Iverson. Bubba, I'm not firing the coach. That's it. You've never heard me say anything definitive against either one of you, but that is it. Now, look at each other. Look in the mirror. You may be a different color, a different size, a different generation, but you're the exact same. You have the same exact will, goals, work ethic. I said, this is the two of us. And I said this. I said, i got to watch what I say here, but I don't want to use the exact (laughs) words, but I said, (laughs) Alan, I said, Alan, the coach doesn't respect when you're coming off the court and you MF him when he's making insertions, substitutions. I said, that's not how you treat your coach. And I looked at Larry. I said, Larry, Alan thinks that you're the jail warden who says, sit over there, and the N-word, mm-hmm. and be quiet. And they both looked at each other. like It was like a, in Zen they called it Saturi. It's like a moment of no mind and an aha, like, whoa. And then I said, don't you understand? You both really love each other, but you show it in different ways. And as I'm saying this, Ray and Glenn, Alan's leaning on the table with his arms crossed now on the table, almost like getting into it. At the end, he get I said he said I asked him to say something. I asked Larry Brown to say something, and it was so good, so poetic. Larry, Larry Allen gets up and walks all the way over and hugs him and hugs. They stood and hugged. I don't know if there was tears or not, 
But it was the most precious moment of my NBA career. And then they went out and practiced, and that was the beginning. I think wow. it was year four, the year four that changed. I should tell you, though, I get home, and I'm so happy. I'm so relieved. And I get a phone call, and it's Larry Brown, and I think he's going to thank me. He was so mad at me. He was so angry that I usurped his power and allowed him to be at the plane, level plane with Alan that I, I was just shocked. I, I mean, I, I didn't know what to say. And that was like, whoa. But you know what? It didn't matter. For the next two years, we were on a winning streak. Well, you're right about that. I mean, that the streak that you guys went on, when, when finally Cod had that, that epiphany and those two guys found that they could work together, I mean, it was, it was magical, I mean, what they did. And, and that run that they had to, to the 2001 playoffs was tremendous. Uh, I still remember the mood of the city. I still remember how alive the city was. I remember people driving around with, with Sixers pennants on the, on, their, on the antennas, on their car radios. I mean, it was all over the place. And then you, have, you go out to Los Angeles to, have, to play the Lakers, the muddy Lakers with Kobe and Shaq. Uh, and then you have that tremendous first game, uh, which was, I think everybody here will remember that. And I remember reading an interview with you where you talked about the, the you know, Tyron Lue moment that uh, when, when Iverson sinks the shot and steps over him, that you, uh, that you jumped up and were shouting and sort of pointing at Jack Nicholson and pointing at Sharon Stone and saying, there, there, take that, take that. You threw it right back in L.A.'s face. Philly loved that. I really, I, you know, that's great memory. That really was what happened, Ray. And it was just kind of like, I'm out of my mind. Like, yes, yes. It was, and it, you know, you talk about those pennants on cars. It was the Philadelphia 76ers. But put the emphasis on Philadelphia, because even if people weren't a basketball fan, at that time, they were proud to be a Sixers supporter. It was really just like a dream come true. We were doing the show back then. People are coming in and getting tattoos. They're getting braids. <laughs> it, it, was, it was an amazing thing. Um, so a series of challenges begins for you around then. Um, we'll get to the accident momentarily. But you leaving the Sixers was, um, was a tough moment for fans. You were immensely popular. As I recall, Pat, you kind of wanted a new challenge. You told that to Ed Snyder, essentially – the challenge was that you wanted his job, uh, and that was the end of that. Ed wasn't going to have it. Is that is that an accurate portrayal of it? No, not totally. Yes, okay. I wanted the I wanted the CEO of Comcast Spectacore, but he was the chairman. Oh, so and we had talked about legacy and about so no, I didn't want him stepping out. I just wanted to step into the CEO position, who they eventually went gate rich something or rich radner rich someone and then eventually peter luco so no at the time i know it was possessed it was positioned that i wanted his job no i didn't we had talked i told him after five years this is wonderful but this is not what i want there's no i want to challenge i mean the players can take the challenge on the court i want to grow everything i mean the comcast sports net the flyers i mean i started with the flyers and and so we talked i mean the the arenas and so I really thought I really thought that he was dangling the keys keys to the kingdom for me to run and operate, and then it didn't happen. And so I wasn't going to stay. There was no way I was going to stay. 
So with that with that revelation now that that's that that's really where this is. I mean, you really are at a crossroads now. And so, how do you decide what the, what is the next path? How did you figure? How long did it take you to figure out where you wanted to go next? You know, probably too short. I didn't know. Just like after I left sports medicine, but I I still wanted to do something, right? I still had lots of energy, and now I had you know I had money, and I, and then I always liked Key West and was a friend of Jimmy Buffett's. And that. so I went down and I thought, oh, it'd be pretty cool create a pirate museum, being a pirate affectionado and having an unbelievable collection. I thought maybe I'd put it down here. It was a stupid, stupid idea because people go to Key West for water activities. They may be pirates, but they go for water activities and partying. They don't go for museums. So hmm. we eventually moved the museum to St. Augustine, make it bigger and better. And that is where pirates walk. And that is a historic traveler's uh, Mecca. So it works beautifully there. But at the time, and so I bought the restaurant next to it. And eventually I get into the hospitality, find some of the good restaurants like Green Parrot Bar and Half Shell Roll Bar. And, you know, just, you know, still my son and son-in-law run all those, but it's just, uh, I, you know, I don't know what I was doing. I, Brian Glenn, my wife would say, what are you chasing? Like, what are you afraid of? What is it? about you that you just can't be still. And now I'm thinking, what the, what are you talking about? I had no clue, guys. I had no clue. To me, it was what's next, whether it's the next sports medicine center, the next win, the next restaurant, the next, the next, the next. I had no clue. I had no clue. So to answer your question, I never asked the question that I tell people now to ask themselves, what's my motivation? What is my motivation? So, I really, to answer your question, Ray, I don't know why I did what I did after the Sixers. I, I, I think I was, I don't know. Well, one thing you did that was fascinating, uh, and I don't know if, if you put this in the same category, but your interest in pirates um, prompted you to fund an expedition to solve, <laughs> solve a 400-year mystery, which was to find Sir Francis Drake's shipwrecks off of Panama. I mean, that... In and of itself, that's a fascinating life story. What, um... oh, Glenn, 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 that's not totally the truth. That's what may have been written, but that's not the truth. I, was, I failed in what I really wanted to do. We did find remnants, scuttled remnants, burnt remnants of, the, of those two ships that they, at the time were, he was buried there. He was set off to sea, and so he had a fleet there in the Bay of Portobello. I wanted to find his casket. I, I know uh, I had his journals. I wanted wow. to find him in the bottom of the Caribbean and return him to Queen Elizabeth II by a royal parade across the Atlantic. That was what I wanted oh, to do. Oh, that was the only goal. Wow. Well, sorry you didn't I, get I that the done. Ambassador, I had the ambassador on 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 quick notice I, because if I found it, we'd have to do it, get Navy SEALs or someone to do it because there's no way Panama's going to let me take him out. He was... Uh, art criminal the, to the Spanish Empire. So, but that's exactly. And so the entire crew that I had were from all over Australia, Great Britain, New Zealand. I mean, these were some of the best. And so it was, and we had some great hits, but after two weeks, things were getting a little sketchy and I didn't want to end up in prison. Good idea. <laughs> well, I, ha- I have to. I, I have to ask. It's, it's just so intriguing to me that you had this fascination with 
with with the whole pirate culture. I mean, you were I mean, you were way ahead of Jack Sparrow and all this kind of stuff. I mean, what? Well, yeah. What uh, what was it? I mean, is this something you were interested in from from childhood, or did you just yes. kind of come upon it later? No, Ray. Ever since watching Earl Flynn and Captain Blood, I was probably eight, ten years old with my dad watching that movie and. I mean, I and I have his jacket. It's in the museum. I got Captain Blood's jacket. I mean, I have Jack Sparrow's sword in there, too. But nevertheless, I mean, that's one. Hollywood Pirates is just one of the nine areas. The other eight are truly bring you back into the 17th and 18th century with the artifacts. But this, I should tell you that this, this Pirates, Pirates, I was... I was fanatical about Pirates because I didn't know at the time they're entrepreneurs. And they were... They had their own way of, you know, they weren't prejudiced. It didn't matter if you were black or white. If you were a slave, they'd free you. I mean, here's, what, here's, such, here's a cool thing about pirates. So let's say a pirate ship raids a merchant ship. Now, the, peop- the guys working on the merchant ships were mostly conscripted. They didn't want to work on it. They were brought on because the merchant was rich and who's with the Royal Navy. And so now the pirates raise the black flag, the skull and crossbone. And there's only two of those flags in the world, and one of them is in the museum. Way cool. It's very cool. <laughs> very cool. So, so they hoist the black flag, and they shoot the cannon across the bow of the prey. Now, if the ship, the prey, the merchant ship, doesn't strike their colors down, well, then the pirates hoist the red flag, and that means no quarter given, and all hell's going to raise. And so otherwise, so now they raise, they jump, you know, they crash their ship into the, the merchant ship, and they board it. Then they get all the seamen aside, and they ask them. They make all the weapons, pull the weapons out. You know, there's pirates aren't that dumb. They don't want to, again, they don't want to work, so they really were hoping that the marketing with the, with the Jolly Roger would make the other one surrender. So then they get them all together, and they ask them, how did the captain treat you? And if the crew say no good, well, that's who they punish. They would punish and keel home, tie him, you know, his wrist and his feet and pull him underneath the ship and against the hull of the ship and just all against the barnacles and rip him to death. And wow. so, you know, but they, and then we ask the crew, you want to join us? If so, come. If not, later. They don't, they don't have any weapons. But so, I mean, I was just infatuated. And in St. Augustine, and I loved Sir Francis Drake. We call him Sir Francis because the queen knights him, but she's smart enough to give the sword to, I think it was the Frenchman next to him because she doesn't want King Philip to look bad at her because he has the armada. But this guy was like you and I. He was a commoner. Here's one of the rarest guys, just a commoner, who then becomes a knight. Now, that's like a physical therapist or trainer becoming the owner of a team. (laughs) (laughs) I, I get it. That was part two of Glenn and Ray with Pat Croce uh, from Saturday. And a lot of interesting stuff there, just in terms of why he left the Sixers. He wanted to go down to Florida and and do all this stuff with pirates. And and just, I wish I was half as interested. I wish I was like a tenth as interesting as that guy is. Like, seriously, I'm not that interesting of a guy. I'm not going to lie to you. I, you know, like to sit around and, and. Watch sports and obviously talk about sports and have a couple couple beers and, you know, go outside, go golfing, stuff like that. I am not nearly as interesting as that guy is. And um, fascinating stuff. Uh, but what I want to focus on is, you know, what, what 
Pat talked about, as far as the 2001 Sixers, I talked a little bit in the last segment about the enthusiasm surrounding that team, but it really was a team that everybody jumped on board with. And you rarely get that kind of feeling with a, a, a team. Like, obviously, 2017 Eagles, any Eagles run, you'll get that kind of support. The Phillies became like a yearly thing where everybody would, you know, the red October stuff where it would feel like football season didn't really start until the Phillies were eliminated. Um, but that was really the only time with the Sixers. And, and I said it before, the Sixers in my lifetime have been by far the least, the least successful organization in this city. I mean, one conference finals appearance uh, since I... I uh, maybe 83. Like, I don't remember the last time they made the conference finals before 01. Um, they made it in 01. Before that, they were completely irrelevant in the 90s. Um, well, the mid-90s, or the late 90s, they started getting better with Allen, and they beat Orlando in that playoff series, and um, Indiana was the team they struggled with for a few years there that, that kept eliminating them. But that team in 2001 was really the only vestige of success that they've had. I mean, the 2019 team a couple years ago, we don't know what would have happened had Kawhi missed that shot. I mean, Sixers could have lost in overtime, but you go to overtime, you win that game. I firmly think the Sixers would have beaten Milwaukee that year. I thought the Sixers matched up well with Milwaukee, um, beat them in Milwaukee a few weeks earlier, and I think the Sixers would have won that series, but but who knows? Um, but that 2001 team was was just special. And it was special because of the makeup of it. Like, I think a kind of a comparison is like the 93 Phillies. Like, it, it's a weird comparison. But in terms of just like a ragtag group, because that's what you hear about that 93 team. And that's kind of how that 01 team was. Because aside from Allen, that, nobody on that team was special. I mean, Aaron McKee had a great year. He was sixth man of the year. Um, and he was probably their second best scorer that year. Uh, Dikembe Mutombo was a good addition, defensive player, but he wasn't a scorer at this point in his career. And then you had, you know, your Tyrone Hills and George Lynch, even though George Lynch getting hurt before the finals was a significant loss for the Sixers that year. Uh, Eric Snow, um, one of the better players on that team, it turned out that you didn't really know at the time was Raja Bell, a guy who you wish they would have kept around, had a big bucket in the overtime of Game 1. Um, but it just a, a, an unbelievable team. And what made it so much more special is the things that, that Pat kind of talked about there with Larry and Allen. And, you know, their relationship is just fascinating to me. It really is fascinating when you look at the way that they, you know, didn't get along a lot of the time. But like Pat says, they loved each other. And uh, a story Pat didn't tell there that I've heard Billy King tell on the station before is that there was one night the Sixers had Allen traded to Detroit. Like Allen Iverson was traded to Detroit. That trade was done. Uh, he was going to go to the Pistons. I believe the headliner coming back to the Sixers was going to be Grant Hill, which thank God that didn't happen because Grant Hill ended up dealing with injuries that, that wrecked his career. And um, at least with Allen, you got endless excitement and one season of real quality success. But 
the that trade was apparently done and, and it fell apart because I think Matt Geiger wouldn't waive his no trade clause, which in a way Matt Geiger ends up saving the Sixers organization. But um, it, 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 their relationship was fascinating, and um, you know, Allen at his at his Hall of Fame press conference, he, he broke down in tears talking about Larry Brown, and they're two guys that that. Were stu- as Pat said, they were both stubborn, but they both they both respected each other when it all came down to it, and they both needed each other. I mean, they both needed each other to win, and they're, those two guys were really what made the team special. And I think really those three, when you look at Pat Croce, Larry Brown, Allen Iverson, they're the three most memorable figures from the 2001 team. And Pat Croce's role in this organization is one that, should never be forgotten about. I mean, um, what he did for the Sixers, what he did to infuse excitement into that organization, perfectly coinciding with the with the the uh, draft pick of Allen and getting Allen in here, um, it was a tremendous feeling, and I want that feeling again so bad. And I I think the excitement for this Sixer team will pick up as we move forward here. Um, we still have some time before before things get real uh, in a couple weeks. But obviously, um, you know, this team has a real opportunity to win a championship. And I'm not sure you could really say that for any team other than the two, since the 2001 team. Um, as I said, I would I would say the 2019 team had a legitimate chance uh, if that Kawhi shot doesn't go down. But um, I would love to see that energy and enthusiasm coming back for the Sixers again. And man, an Eastern Conference Finals. You know, game one at the Wells Fargo Center, uh, with hopefully by that time, um, which would be what six, seven weeks down the road. Hopefully, we'd be able to to get more fans in those stands. Man, that would be an electric atmosphere, regardless of who the Sixers are playing. But that'll do it for the show tonight. I will be back in Monday into Tuesday, filling in for Big Daddy Graham. Thanks to Dan Wilson for producing the show tonight. I'm Tom Kelly, Sports Radio ninety four WIP. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates – Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.